Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 292 with my guest, NHL legend Theo Fleury. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Obviously, you hear my dog shaking her chain uh, in the back there. One of my dogs. Um, <laughs> well, I lost my train of thought. Ivy! Um the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the Twitter handle you can uh, you can follow me at. Uh, go to the, our website. You can fill out a survey. Uh, half, half of this show is uh, after the interview, I read um, surveys, uh, people anonymously sharing their deepest um, secrets, fantasies, thoughts, shames, um, you name it. So fill out a survey. It's totally anonymous. Uh, there's other things you can do on the website. You can browse the forum. You can support the show financially. Um, all kinds of things. So go uh, go check it out. I uh, just want to remind you, LA PodFest is coming up uh, September 23 through 25, and I will be doing a live recording with um, comedian Murray Valeriano on Sunday night, September 25th. And if you want to... Uh, Go to PodFest and see it in person or just watch it over your computer live or archived for up to a month. Uh, go to LAPodFest.com uh, and use the offer code HAPPY and then I'll get a couple of dollars if you do uh, buy anything. And you get five bucks off. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey and this was filled out by uh, Nibbler who writes about uh, her depression, chronic depression. Looking forward to abject despair, because then I'll at least feel something. Oh my God, I think so many of us know that feeling. It's like we need a cattle prod to uh, to experience anything other than gray. 
A snapshot from her life. Months now spent unemployed, sleeping all day, up all night, binging on TV shows and match three games to drown out the voices of guilt and shame telling me how pathetic I am. Working so hard to keep taking the steps towards health, from brushing my teeth to seeing my therapist to getting to my martial arts class. Raging at the brain chemistry that makes everything so difficult and so, so tired of having to be strong. That's why I think it's so important to have people that we we can um, collapse around. It's uh, it's it's so unfair because we don't treat people that have the flu like that. You know, do we shame ourselves or others when we have the flu? But for some reason, with mental illness, um, we we view it as as a personal failure or weakness. Um, Liliana writes about being a sex crime victim. Ugh. I wish my experience in this regard were neater and easier for me to understand and therefore talk about. I would say maybe 10% of the survivors I've talked to have had an experience that doesn't have something in it that they beat themselves up about, that they feel is, you know, in a gray area or actually is in a gray area. Um, So you are not alone with that. That is a real thing. And sometimes it's our brains doing it that way. Um, And sometimes uh, in reality, it's it's in a gray area. But if you don't talk about it, um, you you can't move forward with it. And the first two years I started talking about the stuff that happened to me, I felt such shame and such anxiety that somebody was going to say that it wasn't valid, that what happened to me. So walk through that fear and start talking about it. Um, A snapshot from her life. I'm a curious and experience-hungry person who values travel, stepping outside of my comfort zone, and meeting people. However, I'm so stuck in my head with compulsions, obsessions, and a wide range of crippling anxieties that I'm paralyzed and miss so much. I like to think that I'm a laid-back and adventurous person trapped inside my stupid brain. You know, one of the reasons I want to read your survey is I think we're both. Uh, I think we can be experience-hungry, laid-back, adventurous, and anxious, <laughs> you know, obsessive, depressed, compulsive. Uh, I guess that's what makes one of the reasons I'm drawn to doing this show is we are such, such complex uh, animals. What do you use? What, what do you Things? People? Units? Derby girl. Right, it gives us a snapshot from her life. Her uh, issues are anxiety and codependency. And she writes, recently had one of the most intense flashbacks I've ever experienced. I felt some of the same painful bodily sensations that occurred during my sexual assault. I couldn't stop the mental imagery from playing over and over in my head. I was unable to breathe for about 20 seconds and I began sweating profusely. I ran out of my bedroom, grabbed two handfuls of ice cubes from the freezer, and began rubbing them on my face, stomach, and legs. I did this in a dissociated dissociated, <laughs> dissociated state and didn't fully realize the importance of my action until after the flashback and panic passed. My therapist and I discussed gripping ice cubes whenever I feel the need to punish myself or to use the ice as a coping skill when I become overheated or panicked. I allowed myself to sob, to wail, and to feel the pain that accompanied the flashback. 
but there was but was also able to stay present and realize I was safe because of the shocking effect of the ice. I felt proud of myself for utilizing this skill and practicing self-care. So I got that going for me, which is nice. <laughs> nice reference to uh, to a Caddyshack, by the way. Uh, that's awesome. Um, one of our former guests, uh, Susanna Brisk, who has borderline personality disorder, uh, mentioned that the ice cube thing is very helpful. Uh, to her as well when she feels overwhelmed. And one of the things she does is she holds him in her hand and then she throws him um, uh, really hard in the bathtub. It's all about tools, man. Uh, Alex on the Mountain uh, writes about her anxiety. Just the thought of how to fit anxiety into a struggle sentence fucking stresses me out. Snapshot from her life. The external me is important, flamboyant, attractive, and loved by others. The internal me is overwhelmed and struggles to maintain desire to connect with my husband or close friends. My eternal is stronger than my internal most of the time. Oh my God, I just realized I judged in questions and questioned every single thing I've written. I didn't expect to feel this much anxiety. Thank you for that. And this is filled out by uh, Ashley and she writes about... um, uh, just a snapshot from her life. Her, her issues are depression, bulimia, and uh, living with an abusive person. And uh, she writes, I don't have a moment. I do have a quote, though, that pretty much sums it up. You are personally responsible for becoming more ethical than the society you grew up in. Wow, I don't know who said that. Um, but that is profound. That is profound. So um, we're going to get to uh, the interview with Theo, but I just wanted to read this um, piece that was written by uh, retired NHL referee, uh, Kerry Fraser, and he was nice enough to um, give me permission to read it. He wrote it for uh, the website Players Tribune, uh, which is a fantastic website of articles written uh, by professional athletes about their lives, about their sports, you name it. And uh, I stumbled across this this uh, little piece that Kerry had written about um, uh, a moment that he had uh, with Theo. And I thought, and I didn't come across this article until a week after I had interviewed Theo. So um, I wanted to read it because I just feel, well, just stop explaining it, fuck face, and read it. All right. Um, and I will put the link if you want to read this uh, article. I will put the link on our website. And thanks to Players Tribune and to Carrie for uh, giving me permission to read this. Uh, he writes, Theo Fleury challenged me to a fight in the parking lot of the United Center. I remember it like it was yesterday, even though it was 20 years ago. It was the first round of the 96 playoffs. Chicago versus Calgary, game one. Theo reminded me of me, actually. Small guy, gritty player, played with a lot of anger. But there was also this nasty edge to him in the way he dealt with authority figures. Let's just say our relationship wasn't the best. So during game one, I called a retaliation penalty on him. It was just a normal call, but for some reason, Theo went absolutely nuts. I saw him skating towards me, and I started having bad flashbacks to the Wild West days in the 
AHL in the 70s when Rich Lemieux took a swing at me. Long story short, I yanked Lemieux's jersey over his head to try to calm him down, and his teammate, Ken Houston, jumped over the boards and grabbed me in a bear hug. Uh, My little legs were dangling above the ice. My linesman came over and saved me just as Lemieux was pulling his jersey back down. So what I'm saying is, stuff can happen. Theo skates over to me and says, You little shitbag asshole, come outside to the parking lot after the game. I'll kill you. Fair enough, a little extreme, but I've heard worse. It was the playoffs. But then he threw his helmet off like he was about to drop the gloves, and it hit my right skate. I felt that rush of adrenaline go through my body. The only other time I felt like hitting a player was when a tough guy named Lynn Margaret Uh, of the Muskegon Mohawk spat directly in my mouth when we were arguing a penalty in 1979. I had that same feeling now. For a split second, my leg twitched, and I was going to kick the helmet right back at Theo. That would have been the end of my career. Instead, I took a deep breath and threw him out of the game. That defined our relationship for a long time. Theo probably thought I hated him, and I certainly thought he hated me. There's a photo that I love of Theo getting pinned to the boards in Detroit, and instead of chirping the big guy who's tying him up, his face is turned to me, telling me to go to hell uh, for not calling a penalty. Four years later, I was refing a game in New York when Theo came up to me with tears in his eyes. Carrie, you got to do something, he said. Theo had just gotten back to the ice after some time in a rehab program. At the time, I didn't know the extent of his past trauma with sexual abuse. Nobody did. But everybody in the league knew that Theo had spent a few rough years struggling with drugs and alcohol. At the very end of the first period, Theo had gotten into a scrum with Blues tough guy Tyson Nash, and words were exchanged. Theo skated up to me after everything got broken up, and he was very emotional. You almost never see guys get emotional on the ice, but this was different. Carrie, he was talking about my drug problems, Theo said. He can't talk to me like that. I'm really trying to clean my my life up, Carrie, honestly. He told me he hadn't had a drink in X days, hadn't done drugs in X days. I could tell he was sincerely wounded. In that moment, I didn't see the guy who threw his helmet at me and called me every name in the book over the years. I just saw a human being who was in a lot of pain, and I wanted to take his pain away. But what was I supposed to do? I didn't actually hear what was said. Do I kick Nash out for something I didn't witness? How am I supposed to explain that in my game report? It was a gray area. So as everyone was skating off the ice, I asked Theo, what about an apology? Theo said, an apology? Yeah, an apology. If I get Tyson back here to apologize, promise me you won't break a stick over his head. He told me he hadn't had a drink in X days, hadn't done drugs in X days. I could tell he was sincerely wounded. Okay, deal. All right, come back and meet me at this spot before the next period. I went right to the visiting team's coach's room to talk to Joel Quenville, who was coaching the Blues at the time. I told him we had a little problem. I told him what was said, and I'll never forget Joel's face. He's such a solid guy. He said, Do you want me to have Tyson take his gear off? I said, no, I want him to apologize. Joel said, great idea. And he went right into the locker room to talk to Tyson. I skated out at the start of the second period. Theo came out of the tunnel and met me at the prearranged spot. Tyson entered the ice at the Zamboni entrance and skated around a bit. He was reluctant to come over. 
so I had to wave him over to join the party. When Tyson got to us, his lip was actually quivering. You could tell he was deeply affected, perhaps even ashamed. He tapped Theo on the shin pad and gave a terrific apology. I want to wish you all the best in everything you have ahead of you, he said. Theo and Tyson shook hands. I said, let's play some hockey. And we played some hockey. Tyson ended up with an assist in 17 minutes in penalties that night. He was doing his job. Ten years later, I had a phone conversation with Tyson. I asked him if he remembered that night at Madison Square Garden. He said, Carrie, are you kidding me? Of course I remember it. That night changed my life. It really made me think about what kind of person I wanted to be. As a referee, you get a tremendous amount of shit. You get it from players, fans, coaches. You get it when you're having a hamburger at a bar. Hey, Fraser. You get it at hotels. Oh, Mr. Fraser. It's just the job. But you know what? At the end of the day, no matter what job you're doing, everybody has that moment when you lay awake in the middle of the night and you stare at the ceiling and wonder, what's the point of all this? Am I making some small difference in the world? That night at Madison Square Garden, I really do believe that three lives were changed in a small way. I know mine was. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job... Mental illness. ...is convincing myself... I'm so alone. ...why... Hypervigilance. ...I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. And you're just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it, because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated, and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with uh, NHL legend Theo Fleury and uh, director Mike Lynch. And uh, they have a movie out uh, called Victor Walk that I just... Uh, watched last night and was just just blown blown away by it it it's um why don't you tell tell the people what the what the movie is about theo well i think most importantly it's about hope it's about healing it's about uh you know no matter how far down the ladder we may fall we can always get ourselves back up and dust ourselves off and and uh you know make some real you know changes in our life and and uh, <clears throat> the importance of each and every one of us individually has a story. And uh, a lot of times we are afraid to tell our stories because of, you know, the shame, uh, the guilt uh, that's attached to our stories and uh, that we somehow take responsibility for. And um, Isn't it amazing how the, the brain does that? Yeah. Well, the vein, the brain is actually velcroed for negativity, you know, uh, that's how, how, how so? that's how we're wired yeah. is that, uh, we latch onto negativity more than we do to, you know, what, what do you think the evolutionary purpose of, of that is? 
I think there's lessons, you know, that yeah. we can all learn from, you know, from our struggles and, and from the past. And I, I truly believe that we're all handed adversity in our lives so that we eventually tell our stories and the commonality of, of, you know, what we all share in common is, is trauma. And, uh, and that allows other people to, you know, find their voice through other people, you know, and, you know, that's been my experience. I wrote playing with fire in 2009 and, and, uh, and through that, you know, we, we've met so many people who have come up and said, you know, take all the hockey stuff out of your book. And you just told my story, you know, and that's, you know, what's really common about Victor walk and the Victor walk documentary is that, you know, uh, some traumatic life experience happens to us. Doesn't have to be sexual abuse. It can be pretty much anything. And, you know, then we gravitate to the dark side of life to deal with, you know, the emotional pain and scars that are left behind from, from that childhood traumatic experience. And, and, uh, you know, instead of living, we just cope and, uh, you know, um, and so many people think that addiction is tied to drugs and alcohol. Well, you know, there's the full gamut of, you know, um, you know, iPhones are, you know, an addiction and, and, uh, you know, so, um, until we sort of have some negative consequences for, you know, that type of behavior is when we really start to sort of wake up and, and go, you know, I'm better than this or, you know, I'm going to die eventually if I continue down this path and down this road. And, and, uh, but you know, that, you know, that ugly five letter word, you know, that shame is attached to all of this, you know, not only do we shame ourselves, but other people shame us. And, and, uh, you know, we eventually start to believe them and listen to what they you know, mm-hmm. tell us, and that's that's how we end up feeling about ourselves. And I think uh, a, a lot of people that aren't survivors don't understand how but, complicated uh, the ripples are. But it, but everybody's a survivor of something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't think anybody's immune to trauma. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's what I've discovered is that, um, you know, there's lots of people that wear lipstick very well. You know, and by lipstick, I mean the outsides look good, but the inside don't match the outsides. You know what I mean? And so, so, you know, to, you know, to say there is nobody out there that's have, has an experience. I, I find that hard to believe. And, uh, um, pain is pain. We all, (laughs) we all cope and deal with it and. Whichever way, you know, we choose and, and a lot of people, you know, like to point the finger or compare, you know, and I always say, if I got to compare my life to your life to make myself feel better while I'm sick and I need help, right. (laughs) You know, and, uh, um, you know, my grandfather always told me if I'm pointing one finger at you, there's always three pointing right back at me. So, you know, and if something pisses me off about you, well, guess what? I have the same thing. That's why I'm pissed off, right? You, you spot you know? it, you got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know. And uh, 
and a lot of times we uh, we put so much into other people's opinions of us and really at the end of the day their opinion is all about them it's it has nothing to do with us you know 99 percent of the time yeah. they're thinking about themselves <laughs> exactly yeah, well, yeah, be, because we have yeah. you know we have these things in our brain called mirror neurons and that's exactly what that you know explanation is is that you know you are looking at yourself in the mirror and that's why you've been triggered and that's why you get negative emotions and negative feelings from you know from that person is because you have exactly the same thing and and uh as we all know it's very hard to look at ourselves and and uh, uh especially when the shame is still there yeah of course yeah. yeah um how can people see the movie uh we will be continuing to tour our film festivals throughout 2016 and either late 2016 or early 2017 for us to be on VOD and, and distribution. And, and we'll see whether or not we get a limited theatrical release or not. Okay. And uh, what's the website? VictorWalkDoc.com. Okay. Uh, you did a great job with the documentary, Mike. Uh, I loved how you uh, captured people's stories during the walk. That was, um, to me, obviously the meat of it, which just proved we are not alone. And what I found so moving was the hugs. Talk about the hugs, Theo. Well, I think it's important. Um, if you could scoot to the mic a little closer. I, I think it's important to bring people into your space that have had that experience because, you know, a lot of people, you know, see me and my reputation has always been, you know, this tough hockey player. But... It wasn't tough. I was just friggin' angry. That's what it was, you know? And, uh, and so I want people to feel safe and I want people, people to feel comfortable around me. And, and, uh, and so I exude that, you know, in my energy and the way that people approach me. And, and, um, you know, it's, it was, it was hard to believe watching it that that is the same guy yeah. that I, see clips of yeah. um, but I understand as a survivor that's yeah. who I used yeah. to be anger saved my life many yeah. times anger saved my life yeah. or you know just really not being afraid to die you know that's really what it comes down to <laughs> I right I joke that when the plane would get turbulent I would laugh yeah. because I would say they're all scared. I hope this fucking yeah. thing goes down. Then <laughs> I don't have to make the decision. Well, I used to say, you know, if the plane goes down, you can eat me, you know. Yeah. Right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your story. You were born in Manitoba. I was born in Saskatchewan. Oh, Saskatchewan. And, uh, okay. ra raised in Manitoba. So, oh, you know, okay. the, the, it's like uh, Arizona and New Mexico, basically. Okay. And, uh, you know, my dad was an incredible athlete in his day and, and, uh, so my early childhood, we moved around a lot because he was playing playing hockey in mm -hmm. different places and getting paid. And uh, you know he he uh, he's a really talented guy, you know. And uh, you know somebody who I've become really proud of over the last you know probably ten years. You know since I since my own story came out. You know my dad was sober twenty years when when my story came out and. And he still had a lot of stuff, you know, that he hadn't sort of dealt with. And, and, uh, he saw, I guess, how much I was changing in a short amount of time by helping people. And, and, uh, in the last 10 years, I've seen this guy go from, 
you know, sort of being selfish and self-centered, which mm-hmm. is part of, you know, the disease of alcoholism. And, uh, you know, he's just re- really become this incredible uh, man who is willing to help anybody and everybody, you know. And so it was. it's kind of neat to see that. And, uh, is there anything better than seeing the light come on yeah. in somebody's eyes? Yeah, and, and, you know, and that's part of that 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 closeness when people come to me is is you know i want to be that person that gets rid of their shame Mm -hmm. you know and to watch and you saw it in the documentary you saw that shame leave several of those people in the documentary and that's really what you're seeing is you're seeing you know people get out of their cars their heads are buried in the floor their faces are buried in the ground they walk really slow their their posture is really slouched and you know, at the end of a meeting and, you know, I call it, you know, a reveal, so to speak, you know, their whole demeanor changes very, very quickly. And so, you know, that says a lot to us as human beings that, you know, uh, that we can provide that for somebody and, and, you know, in a matter of a few short minutes, you can change somebody's life just by listening, you know, it, that when I got into a support group for um, uh, dealing with the repercussions of the childhood stuff, hugging somebody that knows what I experienced felt like felt like home for the yep, first time. Absolutely. I was, when I walked into that room, I said, "It's." It's like my whole life I've been a three-legged dog, and I walked into a room of three-legged dogs yeah. and went, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And did, you see in the doc that one gentleman who said he'd never hugged anyone in his adult life. That was amazing. And yet he's hugging Theo. Yeah. And you well, see Theo's him. fucking huggable. I mean, <laughs> there's no two ways about it. You wouldn't have said that in 1997. No, that's true. That's true, for sure. And even going to what you, know, what you said, you know, I think the reason, you know, when I loved Theo growing up as a kid playing him, was I loved the way his, his style, I loved how he had. And when, when I heard later in my adult life, you know, that what he had ex- experienced his trauma and I'd had a similar trauma, it, it was one of those things like, is that why I connected with Theo so much? Was I had that same rage? I had that oh. same anger built up in me when I was playing hockey? So I think it's, like you said, it's something where you might connect with someone and not even realize that you share that same trauma. I, I think about, I play, you know, beer league hockey, and I think about that when I when I see somebody exploding, yeah. somebody who's constantly getting tossed out of games. I think, yeah. what happened? Yeah, what happened? of course. You know? it's, it's, you know, once you get on the other side, it's very easy to notice people's behaviors because again, you're looking at yourself in the mirror, right? Yeah. You know, you know, one of the great things that I get to do now is I speak in maximum security prisons in Canada. So I speak to the baddest dudes on the planet. And what they've taught me is they've taught me compassion, right? Because when I'm speaking and I'm looking in the audience, I'm looking these guys in the eye. I'm, I look, I see myself 10 years ago. You know, that emptiness, that sadness, that loss, you know, that anger, you know. The lack of hope. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, I just go, man, I can't believe how far I've come, you know. And and then, you know, getting instant feedback from these guys going, you know what? Nobody's ever explained my life to me better than you just did, you know. Mm-hmm. And And even though some of these guys are never getting out of prison again, you know, they have hope. And that's, to me, that's just like, 
you know, and if you would have told me five years ago <laughs> that I'd be, you know, speaking to, you know, guys who were molesting kids, I would have said, you're out of your mind, you know, but, but I think that compassion is always the key. Vulnerability is always the key in bringing a conversation to another level, to another level, to another level is, is that, you know, these guys in prison see me as a tough guy, right? But they also saw me in a completely different place, right? Because they saw me as a hockey player and now they see me as the motivational speaker, the, you know, whatever you want to call it. And they go, hmm. So you can still be tough and you can be vulnerable at the same time. It's like, whoa, you know? And, uh, I mean, that takes a real man to, to, uh, one of the meetings I go to is, is a men's meeting and we cry. Yeah. And you have to, that's, you have to, that's in sign order, of a real man to me is a guy that can cry in a room full yeah. of other men. Mm-hmm. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry because those tears could be tears of sadness, but they are really tears of healing your soul and healing that that fire, that anger inside of you, because anger, anger is sadness turned inward. That's all that is. And because, you know, in our culture, in our society, uh, you know, we were always told that men weren't allowed to cry. Men weren't supposed to cry, but, but we're human beings. And that's part of the genetics that make us up is that, you know, anger and sadness are, are two real, very raw and strong emotions. And, and if we don't express the sadness, that's, that's why all those guys are in prison, Mm -hmm. right? Because when anger turns to rage, you can actually black out in rage and in rage, you commit a crime and a murder in a very split second. And that's why some of them are in there because, and, and I'm sure if you ask them, that's, that was never their intention to get for it to escalate to that point. Yeah. But when it becomes out of control, you know, that's what happens. So let's talk about your, oh, and by the way, for, if we haven't mentioned it, uh, Victor walk is a walk that, uh, that you did from, uh, Toronto to Ottawa, which, uh, for our, uh, non-Canadian listeners is the, uh, capital of Canada, and it was to raise awareness on childhood sexual abuse and how lenient the sentences are. And we'll, yeah. we'll get into that uh, yeah. towards the end, mm-hmm. but let's let's get back to your story. So yeah. you were raised in this rural area, and yeah. what, was, what was home life like? Well, it was complete chaos. <laughs> you know, both my parents struggled with, um, with their own childhood traumatic experiences, is how I sort of put it together, and that, you know... Um, my parents were doing the best they could with what they had. Unfortunately, it affected me and my two brothers because of, you know, of their um, their own personal anger, their own sadness, their own everything, right? And so how did they cope? They coped with my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was a pr- prescription pill addict. And, and so that's what we saw. And that's what we learned, you know, it was chaos and and. A lot of yelling, a lot of arguing, a lot of hurting one another with words. Not mm-hmm. so much physical, but with words. And uh, 
and so I discovered hockey at a very young age, which which became you know my happy place and my everything place. Tell, tell the story about the day you tried hockey. <laughs> well, you know, most of us who try something new for the first time, you know, we usually struggle. You know, like nobody goes down to a guitar shop and buys an electric guitar and an amp and takes it home plugs it in and you know starts rattling off Jimi hendrix you know it's you need takes time and dedication and all these things but my experience that day was you know i put on the equipment and i didn't fall down and i didn't struggle and um you know i absolutely fell head over heels in love with hockey and and uh you know without hockey i don't i don't know where i'd be honest to god um and you know, I had three amazing fathers who became my coaches and became my mentors. They coached me for nine years and, um, you know, 13 sets of parents in Russell, Manitoba that, you know, looked after me and, you know, instilled me with some pretty incredible morals, uh, you know, that I still hold near and dear to my heart. And I really believe it's the reason why my hockey career was so successful was, you know, I learned the importance of team i learned the importance of winning and you know i've always said once you have the blueprint for success you have it for the rest of your life and and uh even though i struggled in the middle part of my life with you know with the trauma and the abuse and all that those morals were still there and i really believe that's what helped me come out of it was you know remembering love remembering people caring for me remembering people taught me respect and and uh and, and i learned about consequences too right and so you know i always see that you know um that those three things have to be a part of our our kids upbringing have to be part of our kids mm -hmm. learning is respect love and caring for teammates and consequences and that's what I was taught very early on in my life. And, and uh, you know, even though that I was out of control and a lot of the time, a lot of time when I was out of control, I wasn't with people that I loved. I wasn't with people that I disrespected, you know, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I was a great kid. I really was, you know, and, and unfortunately, uh, um not being able to identify what emotional pain was and where it came from and why, um, you know, why I became an alcoholic, why I became an addict, why I gambled, why I ate too much, why I had too many relationships, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I didn't understand, you know, I was just sort of surviving, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, but both you and I know about addictions is once you cross the line, it's a long road back, you know, uh, once you're a pickle, you can't be a cucumber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, uh, and then you get to the point where you got to make a decision. Am I going to die or am I going to live? You know, and even though you decide to live, you have no friggin' clue how to live life on life's terms. You mm -hmm. only know how to cope. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to really sort of look at yourself in the mirror and and uh, and start to peel the layers of the onion off mm -hmm. to get to the core of, you know, what am I really feeling here, you know? And in writing my second book, I really discovered what my core beliefs were about myself, right? I'm sure they were fantastic. No. <laughs> you know, 
abandonment and neglect, not good enough, not lovable, and do I even exist? You know, were the four core beliefs that I had about myself and and uh, which caused me to be this classic overachiever that, you know, no matter how good I was, it still wasn't good enough. If right? I'm not spectacular, you will leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. But they eventually did leave, right? <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, one thing that we're really good at is we're good at collecting enablers. We're like the best at it in the world. And eventually those enablers get fed up and, and uh, you know, they have to take care of themselves and, and uh, you know, they move on. And, and, but that is that moment when you're completely alone in your chaos and pain and suffering is what we call the proverbial rock bottom, right? And uh, the most beautiful gift in the most hideous wrapping paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's an exercise that we have to go through in order to, you know, really start to live, you know. So let's let's back up then to you're starting to get good at hockey. Mm -hmm. You're in Russell, Manitoba. Yep. You're starting to get a sense of yourself that hockey is giving you an identity. Oh, yeah. Um, g g give me some seminal moments from um, adolescence. Yeah. Well, I think from the time I was six years old that anybody that would listen to me, I'd say, you know, someday I'm going to play in the NHL, you know, and. And I, I would always repeat that over and over, either for myself or, you know, other people. And uh, and so that became my obsession. And did you feel that if you didn't get to the NHL that... that well, there wasn't any doubt. Right. Like, there, was, there wasn't any doubt that I wouldn't, you know. Mm -hmm. and uh, And so, you know, there were certain goals that I had to achieve along the way to get to the NHL. You know, you just don't wake up one morning and say, hey, you know, I'm going to play in the NHL. There's a lot of work and there's a lot of dedication that has to happen in order for you to accomplish that. And uh, <clears throat> when I was 13, I went to a, uh, a camp in Brandon, Manitoba, and uh, it was for a very famous Canadian hockey coach. His name was Andy Murray who coached the Olympic team. He coached mm -hmm. the St. Louis Blues, and it was his hockey school. And and uh, and so I was the type of kid, first on the ice, last to leave, always the first in line to do all the drills. And so there was a scout uh, from the Winnipeg Warriors, and, and, you know, one of my goals was to play in the Western Hockey League, which is the next step to the... Because you wanted long bus rides? <laughs> I didn't give a shit, you know. It didn't matter. I would have walked, you know. Um, and so this scout noticed this little guy who was, you know, so enthusiastic and had a lot of charisma and, and uh, um, in incredible talent. You know, he started talking to me and asking me, you know, what my dreams were, what my goals were, and what my aspirations were. And he was actually paying attention to me, which, you know, I desperately needed at the time was some sort of guidance, some sort of person to um, sort of take me under their wing and, and get me to that next level. And this particular guy just happened to be the guy. And, uh, and so, um, 
I was a part of the first ever bantam draft that they had in the Western Hockey League, which is at 14 years old, you get drafted. Wow. And uh, I was picked in the second round by the Winnipeg Warriors. And, uh, you know, uh, summertime came and this particular scout came to my house and sat my parents down at the kitchen table and basically said, you know, we think Theo needs better competition and... Uh, you know, we'd like to, for him to play as a 16 year old in the league. And so, um, you know, we'll, we'll get him a good home to live in. At 14, you would be playing with 16 year olds? Uh, 15. I left home. Oh, I left okay. home at 15. Okay. And, uh, and my parents knew what I wanted to do from, from day one. So they didn't stand in my way. And, and, uh, you know, when I was 15, I moved to Winnipeg and, uh, you know, needless to say that choice and that decision would change me for the rest of my life because over the next two and a half year period, this particular coach, and I don't like to say his name because he's got enough press and he's some, Mm -hmm. he's like a demigod in, in Canada and, and, uh, but this particular coach raped me 150 times over a two and a half year period. And I don't call it sexual abuse. I don't call it sexual assault. It is rape. Rape is rape is rape is rape because, you know, there was zero consent, you know, on my part. And there's zero consent on most kids at that age. I right? would say all kids. Yeah, exactly. And, and so. With an adult. Yeah. And so, you know, that experience, you know, left me. With, was he the one that scouted you? Or yeah, was it? A, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Like he was the guy that could get me to the to the next level and so he groomed everybody around you know he put him in his his self in a position of power and authority and and uh gave you love and attention oh yeah yeah probably uh took me on trips and started out with probably with with uh innocuous seeming physical contact and escalated yeah Yeah, it's the classic you know the classic grooming right and before i knew it i was in too deep and how the fuck am I going to get out of this, right? You know? And, uh, but yeah, you know, that's where the shame got attached to this guilt, resentment, anger, you know, all of these things. And, and uh, you know, no coping mechanism at the time. For the person who can't understand why every person in that situation doesn't immediately go to a parent or immediately go to the police, what do you... I understand why, but can you can you? Well, my parents that? were not in a <laughs> space to be able to to hear that, you know. And uh, you know when I and I tell this story all the time, you know, when I went to school in Russell, Manitoba, and I walked through the front doors of Major Pratt Collegiate, I knew everybody. I knew the janitors. I knew every teacher. I knew every student. I knew everybody. I went to Winnipeg. I went to a high school of a thousand kids. When I walked through that front door, I didn't know a soul. Nobody. None of my teammates that I played with were at that school. He set it all up. You know. Wow, you were as isolated as you could be. Yeah, exactly. Which is just what he wanted. Yeah, exactly. He wanted me to have to rely on him for absolutely everything in 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 life at that time in my life. And and so I ended up going to this high school party and I sat in this chair and, and uh nobody talked to me and I just was kinda looking around and this high, this grade twelve guy drops a six pack of beer at the foot of my chair where I was sitting, and you know at that time in my life I was anti smoking, anti drinking, anti everything because I saw what it did to my parents. 
And so after having probably a two-hour conversation with a six-pack of beer, you know, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, back and forth, you know, I cranked the first beer, cranked the second beer, cranked the third beer, cranked the fourth beer, and sat back and went, this is the greatest day of my life, you know. And I was hooked instantly. And, uh, yeah, and as the story goes, you know, uh, you know, my addictions took me out of the game, took me out of the sport that I absolutely loved. And, uh, and yeah, about 11 years ago, I had a, let's, let's talk about the NHL years though. If you're, if you're mm -hmm. comfortable uh, yeah. talking about it, um, you, where did you play, uh, juniors? I played Moose Jaw. So when I was in Winnipeg that year, the team got sold to Moose Jaw. Okay, and that became and so the, I, that became the Warriors. Yeah. Okay. Well, they were already the Winnipeg Warriors. We moved to Musha, and we were okay. called the Musha Warriors. And so Graham, who was the coach, became the head coach of that team in Musha, and the general manager. So he was like, he was everything. And so we all moved to to Musha, and uh, is that Major Junior? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's called the Western Hockey League. Yes. So, um and 65% of all NHL players get drafted out of that league, right? And, uh, and it's the most physical of the oh, yeah. Canadian oh, yeah. junior crazy. hockey league. There's for, again, for our non-Canadian listeners, there are tiers of junior hockey, which junior hockey is basically the, the you know, the, the level before pro. So there's starting on the lower level, junior C, junior B, junior yeah. A, and then at the top, yeah. major junior. Yeah, yeah. And... And so, you know, I went on to have this amazing hockey career, you know, uh, world junior champion, Stanley Cup champion, Canada Cup champion, Olympic gold medalist, uh, seven time all star, seven all star games. Did you ever, did you ever uh, do the, uh, win the Art Ross or the, no, the Hart? No, because Gretzky was in the league. He, <laughs> was, he won it every year. That's right. You know, he won the, he won the scoring title every year and the MVP. So there wasn't, and there wasn't not, much scraps left for, you know, us, uh, and then Lemieux as well. Yeah, That's, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then Iserman, Sackick, you know, the list goes on and on. Do, so. you, do you look at the rules now? And I'm sorry if I am going to mm. hockey geek out a little mm. bit, but um, do you look at the rules now and say, man, there would have been so much more room no. to play? No, no, you don't care? I love the era that I played in. It's when it men, was, men were men. It was such a brutal time. Yeah. So much clutching and grabbing, and it yeah, was so it was, much more it, physical. It was physical, you know, and I loved that part yes. of it it fit it fit my story so to speak right and for those of you that don't know uh theo you're five six five six yeah. five six yeah. and in, when you're five ten there are questions about <laughs> yeah, whether course. or not you can play in the yes, nhl absolutely and when i arrived in the nhl i wasn't as big as i am now you know i had to sort of fill into my into my body so i probably played my first year maybe at 150 pounds in the NHL and the average height is six feet, 200 pounds in the NHL at that time. And so, you know, I was given up six inches and 50 pounds. So, you know, but you uh, were fast. That was fast. And, and you were determined and crazy and, you know, nuts. And oh, dude, the, the highlight <laughs> clips of you are just like watching. It's like candy. It's yeah, just so shoot, hit and score. Oh, a lot of people can God. either shoot or score. Hey, they well, they, they consider me to be like a power forward at five foot six and 150 pounds, you know, but 
you know, it was, it was just pure anger that was fueling, you know, that and uh, obviously admiration. And, you know, I'd go into visiting rank and I'd get booed and it, it was just attention. I didn't care if it was negative or not. It was attention and that's all I wanted, you know? And, uh, that's a lot better than them saying, who is that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wasn't sitting on the end of the bench, you know, yeah. playing three or four minutes a game. So, and then you uh, get called up by the Calgary Flames in 1989, yeah. which is the one year that they win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> I know. How awesome is yeah. that? Or your rookie year. At what point in the season were you called up? January 1st so, of 1989. Wow. So I, uh, four months in the league yeah. and you're, and you're carrying a Stanley well, you, Cup. You know, what happened was I was, I was sort of pissed off that I actually got cut in training camp because I was like the leading scorer in exhibition. And, but you know, Calgary had a really sort of established veteran team that mm-hmm. were, you know, taking one last run at the Stanley Cup with the personnel that they had. And so I went down to Salt Lake and I probably, I sulked for the first month and, you know, it was the first time I'd ever lived on my own. So I had to get my own apartment, you know. Mm-hmm cook my own meals, do my laundry. I had no clue, right? You know? Right. And uh and so, you know, I went down for the first month. I don't think I scored a goal in the first month that I was there. And uh, you know, Paul Baxter was my coach at the time and he was, you know, a really sort of tough, you know, grizzly old veteran. And so I remember we were in Denver, uh, playing against the New York Rangers farm team and and uh he, he sat me down in his hotel room and he said, uh, you know, is everything okay? And I said, no, I said, this, I'm not having any fun. And, you know, I, I go, I think you're being a little bit too hard on me at this point. You know, I said, I think I need, uh, uh, some soft love as opposed to tough love. And he said, well, here, I'll make you a deal. He said, uh, when you're in our zone, I want you to play my system okay (laughs) he says you get the puck over our blue line you can do whatever you want and i went on a tear like you have no idea i had like 74 points in in 40 games after that and i was leading the the international hockey league in scoring by like 20 or 30 points and uh so new year's eve we were playing in salt lake and we were playing against denver and uh, Mike Richter was the goalie, the Stanley Cup goalie in 94 when the Rangers won. I scored a hat trick against them. And uh, so I was getting ready to party, right? New Year's mm-hmm. Eve, I just scored a hat trick. It's going to be an awesome night, you know. And uh, So Richter hadn't been called up yet? No, no, okay. he was still in the minors too. Okay. And uh, so I'm coming out of the shower, and Paul Baxter was the coach. And he said, uh, he says, what are you doing tomorrow morning? I'm like... I don't know, probably recovering from, <laughs> you know, tonight. And he said, uh, can you be at the airport tomorrow morning? I'm like, for what? He says, well, he said, I just got a call from Calgary. They're calling you up. And I was like, holy cow. And so the first call I made, I made to my dad. And I said, hey, dad, you know, I got called up. And, and uh, I said to him, I said, I ain't going back. I said, I'm, when I get up there, I'm going to. I'm going to make the most of it. And so uh, I think it was January the 3rd, I played my first NHL game in Calgary against the Quebec Nordiques and, and uh, didn't didn't get any points, but played pretty well. And then uh, the next night we played the, uh, the LA Kings and uh, I had three assists in the game. And then the next game after that was against the Edmonton Oilers in Calgary on Hockey Night in Canada. And I scored my first two NHL goals. Oh. Uh, 
against Grant Fear. And uh, needless to say, uh, uh, I didn't go back. And was that the clip where Don Cherry was yes, in the movie yes, where Don yes, Cherry yes. says, "I Theor- like this new Theorian. kid." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he calls it. messes the name. He messes up everything. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, how is your first name pronounced? Theron. Theron. Yeah. Okay. It's like Darren with T H R. I got you. Yeah. Okay. And so you know, um, we uh, we go on this magical playoff run and. Uh, you know, it ends up in the Montreal Forum, and uh, Fleury is French, and so most of my family are Montreal Canadian fans and have been for forever. <laughs> and so half in that series, half my family still cheering for Montreal, right? You know, <laughs> I, I get it. Yeah. I get it, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, we win the Stanley Cup at the Montreal Forum, and I'm just like, this is insane. Like, this is crazy, you know? And, and it's like beating the Yankees for people that don't follow hockey. Yeah. The Montreal Canadiens yeah. are the Yankees yeah. of, of hockey. Well, you know, Yankee Stadium is like the Vatican of baseball. Montreal Forum is like the Vatican of of uh, um, of hockey. And, uh, you know, the Morris Richards and the Jean Bellevaux, those guys are like considered like archbishops. And you know, he laid in state, Jean yeah. Bellevaux, when he died. He laid in <laughs> yeah. state so at, did, the, uh, at the forum. Morris uh, Rocket Richard, too, yeah. you know. And and people don't understand that or realize yeah. that. But, uh, you know, hockey is like religion in Canada. And if you can, you know, reach, you know, the, the ultimate, ultimate, mm-hmm. which is, you know, winning the Stanley Cup is pretty crazy. And, uh, and yeah, so, so. Did people compare you to Richard? Yeah, there was to the pocket rocket. So yes, uh, uh, Maury, his brother. Morris's Henry. brother. Yeah, he was. You know, Henri Henri won ten Stanley Cups. Like yeah. it's crazy. Um, but uh, you know, in an eighteen month period, I won a World Junior, a Turner Cup, which was the uh, IHL championship mm-hmm. in the minors, and a Stanley Cup in eighteen months. I had three rings, at, and I was twenty years old, and I'm going. This is easy, you know. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like is this going to happen like every year, you know? And uh needless to say I never got another sniff again. <laughs> the closest I got to winning a cup was uh when I got traded to Colorado and and uh and we lost in game 7 to Dallas and Dallas and went on mm-hmm. to beat Buffalo uh But you did win a, uh, an Olympic yeah, and gold, then, gold medal. And then uh, in 2002, you know, that was sort of when I probably should have retired <laughs> because, you know, what more could I have won, you know, or what more could I have accomplished, uh, yeah. you know, in the NHL. And, and truly that's when sort of the passion left me and then my addiction really kicked mm-hmm. in at that point. And Before we get to the addiction, just give me a couple of snapshots from your time in the in the NHL, or it could also be where your addiction was was beginning to yeah. uh, blossom while so, you were still so, playing. You know, uh, Graham got fired from Moose Jaw when I was seventeen, and for, I bas- for what reason? Don't know. But well, I, we can probably yeah, guess. Probably guess. Yeah. And uh, he wanted me to go with him, but Moose Jaw wouldn't give me my release and thank God they didn't. Uh, and that was the last I ever had contact with them was, was, was that time. And, uh, and so he was still in my life, 
you know, he would still call and we'd still have conversations or we would meet up, but it was never the, like, it was never the same, you know, I, I had my own family at that time. And, you know, so he never had you cornered. No, again. no, he never had any control over me anymore. Never any power. Right. And the abuse was from 14 to 16. 16 yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, he, he went on, he coached in Winnipeg for a while and then he got back in the league and he coached in Swift Current. And uh, he got fired from Swift Current for the same reason. Reason he got fired in in uh, Moose Jaw, and uh, he kept phoning me and bothering me. We should buy an, we should buy a team, and you know all this stuff. And so we we got granted a franchise uh, in in Calgary. And uh, was there a little voice in your head going, "What are you What are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. It was I was so confused, but I also knew that he was a great coach and that he would eventually assemble a great team in in uh in Calgary, right? And uh and so in 1996 Sheldon Kennedy came out with his story and uh you know there was whispers and, and Sheldon had also been uh raped by yeah, uh, by Graham. Graham. Yeah. Yeah. And so Sheldon you know couldn't cope anymore. Couldn't cope with seeing him because both Sheldon and I were playing with the Calgary Flames at the time and the Calgary Hitman dressing room was almost right beside ours and and Sheldon got to the point where he just couldn't you know see him around kids and coaching kids and so he he came out with uh you know with his story and <clears throat> there was whispers of uh that there was another guy and everybody assumed it was me and you know for basically I don't know, six months, I had to basically say no comment in the media. And, uh, and, and that's when my cocaine addiction really, what did it feel like saying no comment? Well, I felt like I was lying, you know, and I knew that everybody knew. Um, and you know, nobody really came to my, came to help me either. You know, none of my teammates, none of, uh, my coaches, the organization, uh, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of support. And so, you know, here I am, you know, kind of de dealing again with all of this stuff, you know, the, the PTSD that comes along with, with any sort of, you know, traumatic experience. And, and, uh, I, I delved heavily into the cocaine and, and we all know what cocaine does to you over a short period of time is George it? George Carlin used to say the purpose of cocaine is to make you want more cocaine yes of course mm -hmm. and so you know it was a very fast trip you know to the bottom of the gutter and you know that's where I was and uh, you know that's where I was geez 11 and a half years ago you know I was living in Santa Fe New Mexico uh, had a $3,500 a week cocaine habit you know was buying cases of vodka you know, and, and, uh, and how much, how much would you drink on a given day? Oh, I would, I could stay up for seven, eight days, no sleep. And yeah, I don't know how I did it, you know, and I would basically eventually pass out, you know, and, uh, you know, sleep for 48 hours, get back up and do it all over again, you know, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and then, you know, moved back to Calgary and, uh, you know, started dealing with, you know, with, 
with sort of the wreckage of my past and and uh got sober september 18th of 2005 and and uh yeah i really started putting the pieces back together of my life and you know getting back in my kids life and repairing relationships and you know you know the mm-hmm. story the making amends and you know mm-hmm. paying back people that you owed money and you know so slowly the the pile of shit that you're carrying around slowly starts to dissipate you know mm-hmm. and and finally your side of the street is clean and and uh but i still wasn't satisfied you know I, there was something missing in my life and and you know that's when i wrote the book and and that's when i found purpose and uh and that's when i you know went back to my my roots and uh you know i i i started going to aboriginal communities and sharing my story and working with youth and you know talking about suicide and and all this stuff and and what really happened was is i i, I really grasped on to the you know the spiritual uh teachings that they had and you know my concept of god was pretty fucked up you know i grew up in the catholic church and my mom was a Jehovah Witness. And uh, so I remember standing outside of a, a meeting one night, and this old-timer comes up to me and says, uh, Hey, kid, how are you doing with your higher power? And I'm like, it's not happening. And he said something very profound. He said, uh, he said, you realize in this program that you get to pick your own God? And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about, right? Because I, I never really thought about that right being able to pick pick a god of my own understanding i was like wow and uh and yeah so i started to sort of make up who this whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. was out there right um you know i remember people always saying you know there's a plan for your life and i'm like yeah right you know if this is the plan you know yeah. i'm out of here somebody's yeah. getting fired <laughs> yeah, you know <laughs> and uh but you know slowly but surely you know really starting to connect to that to that power and believing it and and uh it was through the the ceremonies you know um sweat lodge and smudging and powwow and drumming and you know all this stuff i just was like oh my god i'm home i'm finally home and is is part of your ancestry aboriginal yes yes yeah and uh and uh you know i have this incredible amazing woman who uh 40 years ago was living on skid row in winnipeg and picked herself up dusted herself off went back to school got an education and uh you know that you know when you meet somebody and they have just serenity and you go man i want what she has Mm -hmm. and 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 it was like I was so attracted to her serenity that I wanted to learn and I wanted to hang out with her because, you know, she had so much love to give. She had so, so much uh, recovery that I wanted that. And uh, and it was her that it started introducing me because she's very smart. She started introducing me to all these, you know, these teachings and prayer and meditation and all this stuff and, you know, once it finally clicked and the light bulb came off my like my my life just skyrocketed into another dimension you know and uh 
And so all these amazing things that have happened in the last 10 years was because of spirituality, you know? And, and would it be fair to say that for you, spirituality is embodied in leading a principled life yeah. where service yeah. is important? Yeah, <laughs> that's basically it. But I, I'll take it even a step further. To me, true spirituality is relationship. The first and foremost, the relationship that I have with myself, right? Mm -hmm. I had to learn to love myself. I had to learn to be alone with myself and be okay with that. You know, that was an important step, but a, a really scary, you know, sort of painful, uh, you know, learning to be okay with, with myself. And, you know, it's a miracle that I can sit in a chair for hours on end without, you know, getting up and walking around or, you know, whatever it is. And so did somebody say one time that uh, a clear conscience is the softest pillow. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. And, uh, and not causing any more wreckage, you know, yeah. like life is so much simpler, <laughs> exactly. it's so much simpler. Yeah, And, you know, living a drama free life yeah. where I'm not creating drama and I'm not allowing others to create drama in my life as well, you know? And, uh, so part of your healing obviously has been setting boundaries. Oh with yeah. People. Well, I grew up in a house where there was zero. Yeah. There was no boundaries. How did you how did you learn how to do that? Cuz obviously well, first you have to work through therapy, you know, through yeah. you know, I, I don't even know how many hours of therapy I've done. 2000, 3000 hours of therapy. And so you would recognize in therapy, you would talk about the yeah. feelings and you would recognize, <clears throat> oh, this feeling I have about this person is yeah. not a healthy feeling. Yeah. It's not It's not my problem. Yeah. It's my body is reacting to the fact that this person is well, a healthy feeling. Yeah, it's a, and it's a trigger from the past, yeah. right? <clears throat> and uh, because I, you know, any type of conflict or everything, I automatically went to abandonment and neglect, right? You know? Would you shut down? No, no, I'd, I'd get angry, fight or flight. Yeah. Right. You know, that was just the automatic response. Um, and I had all kinds of mental health problems, you know, anxiety, panic disorder, depression, suicidal thoughts, you know, that's it. <laughs> it's, it's the full gamut, right? And that's the sick. We call that the metal six yeah, pack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what I sort of realized is that. You know, when I told my story, all those things started to go away and they started to dissipate from my life. And were you telling it primarily to your therapist? No, no. I was on the speaker's tour. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Like telling my story, anybody that would listen, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, you're only sick as your secrets. Well, I had lots of secrets and I was really sick so you had been speaking primarily talking about uh drug addiction telling and alcoholism my, telling and, my story and then you began to integrate this thing that had happened wow yeah, yeah. that makes sense though what a, what a perfect vehicle for you to begin to yeah to for deal sure. with it yeah because yeah. because i knew every single person in the room when i was speaking i knew every single person in the room that was traumatized in their life right because they couldn't sit still they'd get up they'd walk around you know you see that knee bouncing yeah yeah <laughs> that is the yeah the siren song yeah of the uh exactly and you know when that goes away so does all those mental you know those crazy thoughts and you know desperation and 
you know, all those things go away. And, and, and that's why this movie is so important is because when you can physically see on the screen relationship of two people who've experienced trauma, one who's through it and one who's just starting their journey. You're just starting Mike. No, no. Uh, or, oh, oh, you were no, pointing, I mean, pointing I, to Mike. I, 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 okay. As, as him being okay. the the many people that I see. that come. Uh, okay. I've been lucky. I've been going through the journey for a long. I came yeah. out when I was seventeen to, to my okay. parents yeah. and all my friends, and when even when I met my wife after a month of knowing her, I came out to her uh, when we were dating. So no, um, and and I would say having met Theo ever since I met him. I, I had to dig it back up. And when I was writing the, the narrative script before I did the documentary, I, I dug stuff up and then almost re-traumatized myself and then had to dig myself back out of it again. Yeah. And then doing the walk and then obviously making the, you know, not only the walk changed my life, but then reliving the walk for like, you know. Editing it editing day after it day. Over and over and, and having to hear the stories over and over. And, 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 and that's where I learned a lot from Theo about how to, not take on all their pain, yeah. which is very hard to do sometimes. It's very hard to not take it on personally. Yeah. Which yeah, you, you have to learn you have to learn not to attach any emotion to it. Mm-hmm. Because really at the end of the day, if the person doesn't want help, there's nothing you can do anyways, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All you can be is that you know, I can bring awareness, I can talk about it. But I can't save people's lives. No. Right? You can be a shoulder for them to cry yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's it. That, and that's what I love about the film is you are literally a shoulder, a shoulder for people to cry on during mm-hmm. the walk. And yeah. it's so... It's powerful, it's, isn't it? Uh, it's like sitting next to a fireplace. Yeah. It was just so... Yeah. It just, mm. just warmed me. Yeah. Just and he, warmed and it me. wasn't just the, the shoulder. I mean, what was great, I, I think, about the, you know what he did and what we captured the documentary is, like we've all talked about... Hockey players being the manliest of the men and having someone so manly as Theo who was seen as a, a, a hockey player that had all the fierceness as anyone else. And I think for all these other men, at least from my experience on the walk, having them see Theo find his voice and be able to share his voice. I feel like all these other people on the walk were so tired of keeping their secret for 30 years, 40 years, 16 years, whatever it was. Wow, I can be a man and come out like Theo did and share my voice? Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to have my voice. And even in the trailer, you know, there's a guy who, who kind of struggles for a bit, and he goes, I-, I was abused. And it's those kind of moments where they, the minute they say it, the minute it's off their chest, you see the change in them and that's as you saw in the documentaries i think it's it's the two-parter it's the opening it up saying it and then being able to embrace for the hug on the release so it's almost like breathing breathe in breathe Mm -hmm. out you know say it Mm -hmm. and then hug you know yeah yeah well you you know when those of us who are in recovery we need eight eight hugs a day we is do. what they say. Probably even more than that. Yeah, you know? I tell my wife a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's uh, you know this documentary gets rid of a lot of stigma around the subject. Yeah. Is that at the, at the end of the day we're all human beings and mm-hmm. we've we've been dealt some pretty shitty cards. But even though we've been dealt shitty cards, man, we're still at the core of who we all are as human beings. Is we're we're good people. Yeah, you know, and. And you see that 
over and over and over again in the documentary. And then, you know, and then you see, you know, the people that run our country who are probably more sick than us as victims are, mm. are, uh, you know, are running the country. Have you been able to uh, initiate any legislation changes? Zip, zip zero. Yeah. And what I was told, what I was told when we were in Ottawa is that um, until judges are held accountable for their decisions in our country, nothing's going to change, which means we have to rewrite the Constitution, mm-hmm. which could take, you know, who knows? If people want to uh, help, uh, what, I'll put some links on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, any that you can think off the top of your head, ways that they can help your. Uh, well, we've created the Breaking Free Foundation uh-huh. through the you know through the Victor Walk, and uh, what we're doing is most people can't afford professional help, and so you can write to us for a therapy grant. And if you're approved, is this just Canadians? Yes. Okay. For now, okay. for now, um, we would love for it to be a global movement for sure. Um, but uh, you can write to us for a therapy grant. If you're approved, we'll pay for your first six sessions of therapy, and we'll find you a therapist that will, you know, hook you up, and you can go through the program. And and uh, even after you've done the first six sessions, you can actually write to us again and and reapply. And is this for uh, just people who are uh, sex abuse survivors trauma, or anybody? Trauma. Uh, okay. Trauma, trauma. Which, which encompasses everybody, okay. right? So it could be uh, domestic violence Whatever. or anything. doesn't okay. matter. Okay. Divorce. That was, okay. The, that was the big thing, too, that we Traffic. Had. Would traffic can be considered trauma? <laughs> really heavy yes. traffic? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Well, obviously, that's a big thing that I felt like we all learned on the walk was, you know, and, and Theo says in the film is that, you know, it doesn't have to just be about sex abuse, yeah. trauma, is that trauma shapes us all in our lives, especially childhood trauma, and how we deal with that through adolescence shapes us and who we become as an adult. And that's the, the biggest thing that uh, I think that we want, you know, people to have when they come to see the movie. You don't have to be a survivor to enjoy or relate to our film. You can be anybody who has had any kind of experience, and you'll be able to watch the film. You're going to see other human beings telling human stories that we all can relate to. Well, there's there's always a reason for somebody's behavior, and that behavior is a learned behavior from childhood. It's that simple. You know, what you see is what you're going to repeat as an adult because you yeah. think that it's completely normal that mm-hmm. you know. Your dad beats the shit out of your mom. Well, guess what you're going to probably do when you grow up? That's what you're going to do. If you've been in a neglected uh, family environment, when you grow up as an adult, you're going to neglect your kids. You know, it's just it's just that. Unless you learn a different way. Yeah, of exactly. Which, vicious cycle. Yeah, yeah. That, that vicious cycle of, you know, of trauma. It's funny. We, we teach algebra and... We don't teach uh, people how to recognize and express their own emotions. And we, yeah. which one do we need more on a daily yeah. basis? And we've <laughs> actually been approached as a foundation to to research trauma-informed education because our teachers are traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. And they're passing their trauma onto our onto our kids. So... You know, what does trauma-informed education look like? We are in the early stages. We have a uh, a pilot project going on in uh, northern British Columbia on a couple of the Aboriginal communities that's having an incredible amount of success. And, 
you know we we eventually want to bring that to the mainstream and and because uh, the days of desks is gone you know because kids don't need to sit and listen to a teacher to get information they can just pick up their phone and google whatever they want and find the find it you know and so you know the to create a safe environment within the school system is is the way to go couches and you know bunk beds and you know that's that's where kids learn is when they feel safe and in an environment is when you get the you know the most and the best out of them so i absolutely love it you know i i love the the opportunity that i have every day and uh i'm very grateful and thankful and you know for the people that are listening out there you know i i look at my life now that you know my parents were truly a gift graham james was truly a gift in my life because without having had those experiences i wouldn't be sitting here now and i wouldn't have this you know incredible platform and this incredible um opportunity mm -hmm. to you know to change the world and there hasn't been a day gone by since that first Me Too at that bookstore in Toronto that I haven't had one person in seven years on a daily basis looking and asking for help. And, you know, that's because I let go. You know, I let go and and uh, just let it happen. There, There is no sedative like meaning and purpose. Yeah. Nothing. There isn't. Yeah. And, uh, you know... All of us who've been around Victor Walk for the last three years, you know, people, you know, that haven't had the sexual abuse, but people who've had trauma in their life, the Victor Walk has changed their life. Like all eight of us that were involved in that first Victor mm -hmm. Walk, you see us in the movie and you see us now, we're completely different people. Are you uh, going to do it this year? Yes. We're walking from my hometown in Russell, Manitoba to Winnipeg, which is 400 miles this time. Oh, my God. But uh, what, we've, what we've done is we've turned it more into a rally mm -hmm. as opposed to a walk. So, okay. you know, we'll walk like 20 kilometers a day. But in the morning, we'll do a rally in a small town where we'll do some speaking and mm -hmm. do some talking and hanging out. And then we'll get back on the Winnebago's and walk a little bit more and then make sure we're we're in a new venue uh in the evening and do the same thing because it creates you know community and it creates conversation that a lot of small town oh, communities yeah. just so bury need. that stuff so you know yeah. and uh and so yeah and and not only that we it's like a vacation for all of us to get to see each other and hang out with each other because uh you know our lives are very very busy and we're all doing different things and so it's nice to get nice. together and you know just hang out and you know what's better than having a campfire and having some real conversations I was so jealous with that clip where you guys were were camping and <laughs> and fishing and i was like oh man yeah. th that just that's looks part like of it. the best you know yeah. part of it is still living your life yeah and and being able to have real open vulnerable honest conversations yeah, yeah. and relationship right yeah. you know is uh you know relationships are really hard for mm -hmm. us after trauma you know they really are and and so to be able to have the gift of 
you know, true friends and people who love and care for you unconditionally is, is truly an amazing gift that fills up that big, big hole that, you know, um, we had for so long we were filling it up with all the wrong things, you know, and now we fill it up with the right things. Hockey's given me everything I have in my life and I'll never forget that. And I'll be grateful and, and thankful that I got to play with the greatest players that's ever, that have ever played this game who have respect for me and, and, uh, you know, I could call friends and teammates and, and all of that. But I think more importantly, it's, uh, this is the reason why I was put on this earth. And, you know, obviously hockey allowed me to have the voice that I have today, mm. but, uh, it's great helping other people because you, like you said, you feel it yourself, but it also continues to heal yourself. It does. You continue to heal yourself while you're helping other people. It, and on the walk, it was so hard walking 25 miles a day in the walk and but when people would come and tell us our story it gave us that boost it gave us that energy to keep going yeah and uh you know what i love about this documentary is it's it's not produced reality tv it's real it's real it's very clear you know it's it's real and and uh it's not scripted it's just you know hanging out with with us and and what happens you know even though the victor walk has ended that's still my life today yeah you know that happens every day of my life and uh and like i said i love it it's it's so important it's so needed and and uh you know yeah, I did and, it's, and it's and it's you know guys like you who have these podcasts that you know as long as we touch one soul in the hour that we spent mm-hmm. together then hey this was so worth it Right? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. I, I can't even begin to tell you, I'm sure you could hear it in my voice, but how exciting that was for me to talk to a guy who was a legend in my favorite sport and talk about the subject that's the most important subject to me in my personal life. And um, wow, doesn't get any better than that for me. Uh, before I read some surveys, I want to uh, give some love to Blue Apron. They are our uh, sponsor this week, and they continue to keep putting out great meals. Uh, this week in particular, I made a pan-seared cod and pickled grape with summer bean succotash. Now, that, that there's so many things I love about Blue Apron. Here's, here's the list of things I love about them. You don't have to go to the grocery store. I mean, that's enough right there. Uh, The ingredients are fresh. They're organic. They're uh, responsibly uh, farmed or harvested. Uh, The dishes aren't repetitive. They're not uh, difficult to make. The instructions are clear and simple. And uh, I just... I just love it. I'm a, I'm a fan. And even uh, after Blue Apron is uh, done sponsoring this show, I'm going to continue to, uh, to order it because I like it. And here's the, you know, here's the other thing that I really like about it is, you know, for people who have experienced uh, abuse or whatever you want to call it, um, those of us that, let's just say those of us that struggle with self-care, doing good things for ourselves, a thing like this is a really important 
thing. You know, things like flossing are important to, for those of us that struggle with self-care. But what better way uh, to do something nice for yourself than um, to, to do uh, Blue Apron? Um, so check it out. It's uh, less than 10 bucks per meal. Um, the ingredients are good and fresh because it really starts with, with good, fresh uh, ingredients. Um, this, the, the meals this month in August, spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad, uh, summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shishito peppers and corn, and chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. Uh, so check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Uh, one more thing before we get to some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways to support the podcast if you feel so inclined, and we can always use uh, more money to, to, to keep it going. Um, uh, I re- realize a lot of you um, don't uh, don't have any money uh, to give, and uh, I totally understand that and uh, continue to to uh, enjoy it for free. Uh, there's many things that I listen to that I, I don't even think about um, uh, donating to, so no, no judgment here on my part. But that being said, we could really use um, some, some, some more money here. So uh, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and you can make either a one-time PayPal donation or, my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. And it may not seem like a lot of money to you, but we, uh, we have a pretty big uh, base of listeners, so it can add up if, you know, if a lot of people just, just do that little bit. It, it could make quite a difference. Um, you can also support us by using our Amazon link on our homepage if you're going to buy something in Amazon, and then they'll give us a little bit of money, and it doesn't make what you're buying any more expensive. Um, you can also help us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about the podcast, giving us a good rating. Um, and finally, you can uh, really help us non-financially by spreading the word through social media. That is, um, That's a way that everybody... Could help, and if you don't want to do any of those, I get it. I get it. I played Civilization uh, Five for seven hours last night. Uh, yeah, I could have been doing things that better the world, but no, I was uh, I was mixing it up with England and uh, and uh, India and uh, fucking Russia's popping its head up. I had to bring the hammer down on them, so. I was busy. If you guys have never played Civilization, do not, because it should come in a crack pipe. It's insane. All right, let's get to some uh, surveys and, and emails. Got a pretty big pile, so uh, hopefully my voice will uh, will hang through this. This is an email I got from uh, Fiona, and she writes, um, while listening to today's episode, um, oh, In the shower, because I showered, exclamation point, gold medal for me today. Uh, Lap of honor, I'm going to clean my teeth later too. You were trying to explain cis as a term to listeners which might might not have heard it before. Um, 
think she meant who? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and then she writes, full disclosure, I'm cis, so take whatever I say uh, on the matter with a quarry full of salt. Amazingly, trans people have a variety of experiences. Winked. Instead of talking about being born into the, quote, wrong body, perhaps you could consider the term assigned gender at birth. Um, some trans folks I know have had the surgery some people think essential to being legitimately trans. Some haven't. I don't generally inquire after my friend's genitalia, cis or trans, uh, maybe the middle British class manners, question mark, but their bodies are no less uh, their actual gender. Some men have vaginas and their bodies are male. Some women have penises and their bodies are female. Some people are completely comfortable with their bodies as they have been since birth. Some people find their bodies a source of extreme distress and dysphoria. I hope that you accept this suggestion with all the love I send with it. I've been listening for about two years now. Um, and then she just says some nice stuff about the podcast. Um, and <laughs> and she also mentions that uh, uh, right now she she's playing World of Warcraft in her underwear and invo- avoiding as much of life uh, as she can. Uh, thank you, uh, Fiona. And um, I, you might want to class it up a little bit uh, if you're if you're playing World of Warcraft and wear a tuxedo T-shirt, just in case somebody walks in on you. You don't you don't want to look like a loser. Um, thank you for, uh, helping enlighten me and, uh, get better at articulating and understanding, uh, a segment of the population that is gravely, um, not only misunderstood, but, um, you understand. I don't have to finish that sentence. This is an awful moment filled out by, and to any of our new uh, listeners, awfulsome is uh, something that is kind of awful and yet has something about it that's also kind of awesome. Um, And this is filled out by, why can a parking ticket be validated, but I can't be? And I think we've read uh, one of her surveys before. She writes, many of my school pictures in elementary school and middle school, I am sporting an awful, terrible perm. What you may ask, oh, why, you may ask. Well, my, quote, mother, I don't know why mother's in quotes, uh, would perm my hair when she got drunk and then laugh at me after telling me how terrible it looked. She did this for her amusement only. Not only did she do this to me, she also did it to my brother. He at least would be able to shave his head the next day until it grew out and she did it again. I had to go to school with this very large mushroom-shaped hair on top of my head and people asking, what did you do to your hair? Internally, I wanted to scream, my crazy mother got drunk and this is her pastime and cry because she laughed at me. Instead, I would say, oh, you know, I wanted to try something different. Dare I complain or I would have been beaten. So my choices were large hair or large bruise. At least the bruise would have healed quicker than the hair to calm down, I suppose. I still hate to see my curly hair, and I'm 39 years old. Perms and my, quote, mother, both chemically imbalanced. Thank you for sharing that. Um, For some reason, I just had the picture of uh, Annie from the musical Annie. Uh, I'm not indecisive. I just can't decide. 
uh, describes her ADD. It feels like I'm running in circles while people throw things at me. I stop to pick something up, stop again, grab something else, throw another back, then round the corner and grab the thing I dropped, pick up another, and so uh, over and over and over again. Snapshot from her life. Driving for two miles, not realizing I never moved my high heels from the hood of my car to the inside of my car, and seeing them in my rear view mirror fly off over the roof one by one onto the road behind me. Yep, nope, not going back. I like those heels too. Wait, where was I driving? (laughs) And then any comments to make the podcast better. My friend's dog has a really nice butthole. Have you ever considered a survey? on if slash why we notice dogs' buttholes and what it could mean. I have not considered that. And I'm really, uh, I apologize for the uh, Pandora's box of buttholery that I've opened by uh, riffing on uh, my dog Herbert's butthole. Uh, but I thought about this, and uh, and I've decided that the, there's really kind of three categories of dog buttholes, and it's totally dependent on how covered it is uh, by fur. There's my favorite category, which is you can't see it. It's covered with hair. Um, and then the second category is, I don't know what you call it, but it's kind of like, oh, yeah, when you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot how weird it is to look right at uh, a living thing's butthole. And then there's the third kind, which is uh, spill your drink butthole, uh, where you're never like uh, uh, my friend Lisa Arch, uh, her dog Bogey has a spill your drink butthole that it it looks like it looks like it was designed by Liza Minnelli like it can't get enough of the spotlight um I don't know if that's the case with her but she's the first person that came to mind because I'm 100 years old so that's my thought on buttholery this is an this was filled out as a struggle in a sentence, but it's really an awfulsome moment. And uh, this is filled out by Stefan, or Stefan. And he writes, when I told my mom I was depressed, she looked at me and said, if you were depressed, you'd be seeing a psychiatrist. Unfucking believable That may be the densest, shortest, most perfect uh, awfulsome moment we've ever had. This is an email I got from, uh, I think... It's a woman, uh, yeah, and uh, she calls herself, uh, oh, for fuck's sake, and she writes, uh, my daddy, uh, and then parentheses, I'm not a kid, but it stuck, died in 2007. My mom died in February of this year. I'm on a a lot of medication for a myriad of things. The types of meds cause my emotions to flatline. I was very close to my parents, especially my daddy. I moved into their home to take care of them for the last month of each of their lives, but... I haven't been able to grieve. I feel permanent emotional congestion. This has clearly affected other parts of my life. For instance, my wonderful and beloved husband and I haven't had sex in a few years. Yes, years. He has erectile dysfunction and I hurt too much and my medication has killed my previous highly active sex drive. We decided we could be intimate in other ways, but obviously this isn't ideal for both of us. I'm fortunate to have such an understanding and patient husband. He also has to deal with my mental fog. However, the grief uh, the grief need is making me a little nuts. I know the longer you put off grief, the harder it is to go through when you can. In addition to not being able to grieve, I feel guilty for not being able. It seems like I can feel mild guilt, uh, shame, etc., 
but not this other stuff. Ugh. I was wondering if you had an episode dealing with this issue, and I missed it. Uh, to which I would say, yes, the the episode with uh, Ashley Birch is a really good one, uh, B-U-R-C-H, and uh, she shares about losing her uh, her partner, uh, who she was very close to, her uh, boyfriend. They m- might have even been um, engaged, I can't remember, but um, yeah, he overdosed, and um so that might be a good one. And I'm sure there are other episodes. You can always, if you're ever looking for something, uh, a type of episode, uh, the two best ways to, to look for it is go to our website and in our website's search box, uh, type in a keyword or a couple of keywords and see what comes up. Um, and another way would be go, go to the forum and there's a thread called Discuss the Podcasts and post a question there. Uh, I hope that helps. And the other thing I wanted to say was that that is exactly how I felt when my dad died, is I felt like a piece of shit because I didn't feel more. And it will come up when it's supposed to come up. There's no right or wrong way to grieve. And um, you might you might try um, Googling uh, grief counseling, and I bet there's a support groups or a therapist who's trained in that. So just Google that in your town or city and see what comes up. And if money's an issue, also include low fee. And, and see if that helps. This is an awfulsome moment uh, from a guy who calls himself, oh shit, it's tuba time. And he writes, my old man had intimidated me for years, an ardent perfectionist who demeaned my emotions and taught me, quote, lessons in how best to manipulate others while I was a young boy. My father was the only person in the world I was more afraid of than my mother. I knew nothing about my father, and he showed no side of himself that wasn't aggressive and snide to me. The man was a mystery. And by not getting him, I was showing myself to be unworthy of his affection. This was the kind of guy who would and did give his son a loving, lovingly homemade loser of the year trophy for Christmas. Let's just let that, let's let that sink in for a while. You know, it, if, if Child Protective Services had known that about you, they, they would have removed you from the home. Because that is every bit as bad as punching your kid right in the fucking face. Actually, probably worse. Anyway, continuing, just so you can get a sense of what this guy was about. One night while I was sleeping in my tiny room, I was woken up by the blasting sound of tubas. Curious, I followed the sound for a bit and discovered that it led to the basement. Peering into the basement, I saw my father with his eyes closed and wearing nothing but boxer shorts, jamming the fuck out to a cassette full of tuba music. It was all I could do not to laugh right there. In that moment, the emperor had lost his clothes. He wasn't some ubermensch like I had always thought him to be. He was a fat, balding old man who was either so ashamed of his love for tubas or so beyond the realm of reason that he felt felt compelled to blast heavy brass music in the dead of night and conduct an imaginary orchestra in his underpants. I called this event tuba time, and every time I heard that stupid fucking cassette at some ungodly hour, it told me that my father was, in fact, a regular old person just like the rest of us. Although he continued to abuse me after that night, I never again saw him as an indomitable force. 
It felt like a moment in the movie Predator when Arnold's character evaluates a bloodstain left by the Predator and concludes that his team could, in fact, kill the beast. In a word, seeing my flabby-ass father awkwardly flailing about to the sounds of honking lower brass was simply awfulsome. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Christmas gift. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, Harry Kari or Harry Carey. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, and she is 41, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, a friend's mother used to bathe me when I spent the night and very much concentrated on the vagina. I was six and wasn't sure this was wrong. I mentioned to my sister that she would want to give me a bath, and she said, I bet you like the way she gives you baths. She was nine. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. She writes, the only physical abuse I remember was being run over by my mother's boyfriend. It broke my leg. After he was gone, my stepfather didn't speak to me for about 10 years. They're still together and we have mended our relationship, but I am still very nervous around him. And my brother dislikes me because he doesn't remember the abuse I suffered, only all the acting out I did as a young adult. And I never told him, uh, and I never told him. I resent my sister for leaving me there and moving in with our birth father because I stayed for fear he would hurt my brother who was 10 years younger. I didn't trust him. I have difficulties maintaining relationships, friendships, or romantic uh, with both men and women. I have a massive fear of abandonment and I dream it, of it all the time in one form or another. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My stepfather was the full father of my younger brother and was slash is a very good father to him and is managing uh, and is managing grandfather to my sister's kids, so I never know how I feel about him. I just know he resented me and my sisters deeply for a very long time. Darkest thoughts. I often think about changing my name and moving far away where nobody would know that I am a loser. This often leads to thoughts of suicide, although I would never act on it for the fear that my nieces would be mentally harmed. Darkest secrets. I have shot crack. I don't know if most normal people even know you can do that. I've held my niece after being awake for three days on a meth binge. I was staying with a boyfriend in Los Angeles when I was 17. He broke up with me. His roommate came in the room I was staying in and had sex with me. I was too timid to say no. I never told anyone. He was 28, as was my boyfriend, who one time was my babysitter. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think about having sex with two men most often, sometimes two women with one man. I don't know. It's anything unusual. Um, anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could explain to my brother why there was so much animosity between his father and I. I wish my sister would back me up and not pretend everything was fine. I wish my mother would tell my brother that I was abused and neglected and there are reasons behind my past behaviors. And what if anything do you wish for? I wish that I could be financially dependent. I wish I didn't have to borrow money from my parents to pay my bills. I wish I was smarter and stronger. I wish that my 16-year-old niece didn't inherit these mental disorders that I fear may have come from me. 
Uh, have you shared these things with others? My mother knows I wish I was more financially independent. She often says this is the cause of my anxiety, almost like she doesn't know I had panic attacks all night as a child. She, uh, she wants an answer, and I haven't been totally open with her about my fears. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like maybe I made this all up. Maybe this is just my crazy brain. My birth father has confirmed all my memories, but he disappeared about 12 years ago. I'm so sorry that you had to experience all of that. And um, and I'm really sorry that you don't have a family that uh, supports you, at least, at least for right now. And um, as I recommend to a lot of other people, check out the Rape and Incest Nat- National Network, R-A-I-N-N dot org. And they're a great resource for counseling. And um, all of the stuff that you described in here um, are are the things that the characteristics of uh, a sex abuse survivor. Um, and I'm sorry. I'm I'm just so so sorry that that you don't have any support right now. But there are a ton of people in the world who will love and understand you and validate your experience and your feelings and love you unconditionally. It's just our job to find them. And that's, honestly, that's the hardest and scariest part. Uh, The goblin in the seventh story window writes about her love addiction. He said a total of 12 sentences to me ever, and now I view his blog every day under a web proxy so he can't identify my IP address. The last time I saw him was a year ago. About her PTSD, every single loud noise pushes me out of my body. About living with an abuser, I come home, he's in my bedroom, and my underwear drawer is wide open. I don't know who he is, but that is fucking... uh, I can't imagine what that physically, what must go through your body when you walk in and, and see that. Um, her other struggles. I feel like my life is a clogged toilet that just won't stop flushing. Uh, I wake up in the middle of the night perfectly calm, but my body is thrashing around, screaming that we messed up again, and I have to grab hold of her, pacify her, and rock her back to sleep so that I can go back to sleep too. I'm just trying to map out my life, but I can't remember almost anything. I know I was aware of what I was doing at the time, but it's just not there. Uh, And then she paints a snapshot of fifth grade. I'm in fifth grade. I'm about to put a math assignment away in the folder I keep in the basket under my chair. The next thing I know, my teacher and the math specialist approach me and ask to see the assignment. It's not on my desk. I check in the folder under my chair. It's not there either. Teachers are getting angry. I empty out my whole desk, check the floor and my book bag, and I cannot find it. They scold me for being careless and walk off, shaking their heads. I'm ashamed of myself scared of their anger and confused. I do not know where the assignment went. Things like this have been happening several times a day for my entire life. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that is like. Um, If you haven't listened to the episode with Melanie uh, Melanie R. uh, about dissociative identity identity disorder, um, you might check that one out. Um, because I, I don't know if, you know, I'm not a therapist or a psychiatrist, so I don't know if that's what you have, but, um, if you do, uh, Melanie talks about steps she's taken with her therapist to uh, reintegrate, 
uh, parts of uh, her herself. Um, so I don't know. I'm not. I'm certainly not trying to to diagnose you, but that maybe an episode that brings you comfort or is enlightening or whatever. And then I'm going to apologize a third time. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Tom Thompson came paddling past. I'm pretty sure it was him. Uh, I had to Google that because I was like, I know that's got to be a reference to something. And it's a um, it's a song lyric from the Canadian band uh, Tragically Hip. And she writes, A few months ago, I made the mistake of not taking my meds for two days. It was an accident, but one of them is a Fexor, so it was not great. The first day, which was a Thursday, my apartment building was out of power for almost 24 hours and I didn't have water, and then I fell asleep for like seven hours. Woke up at 2 a.m. and couldn't fall back asleep. The next day, I had to go to work, and by the time I got home, I was so tired, I went right to sleep again. By Saturday, I couldn't get out of bed, and I kept saying, after this episode of whatever I'm watching, I'll get up. I'll run the dishwasher. I'll take a shower. I got up to get more water and suddenly felt such intense sadness. I laid back down in my bed and sobbed harder than I remember sobbing in a long time. I cried so hard I could barely breathe, and I didn't know why. My poor cat was so confused and tried to fix things, tried to fix things by licking my forehead. It was at this moment that my parents called me for their weekend phone call. I picked up the phone and just bawled into it. My mom, who once told me to stop crying at a funeral, said, I don't know what's wrong with you. You were fine last week. I can't talk to you like this. And passed the phone to my dad. Listen to my stomach. Uh, My dad just kind of talked about nothing for a bit and then said, well, you sound kind of tired, so I'll let you go. After the call, I made myself get up and shower, and when I did, I felt a vertigo sensation and these weird electric tingles all over my body, and it dawned on me that I was withdrawing from my meds. I took them, took a shower, downloaded an app to remind me to take them at the same time, and then emailed my parents to say I was okay and not to worry that I'd forgotten to take my meds. And they know uh, I take stuff for my, and they know I take stuff for my mentals. Uh, the next weekend, my parents called, and I was lying on my bed, hanging out with my cat. I talked to my mom first, who never mentioned anything about my emotional outburst. When my dad got on the phone, he talked about his car and whatever my dad talks about, and then said, hey, I was meaning to ask, how are your allergies? What? I asked. Oh, last week, you were having really bad allergies. Are they better now? I said yes, and then got off the phone as soon as I could. I was lying in my bed, just realizing that my parents were in such weird denial that they wanted to call my shit allergies. Allergies. I started laughing so hard that tears started to come down and my cat got up, looked at me in his judgmental cat way and walked out of the room. (laughs) Thank you for that. That The level of discomfort some people have with talking about anything that is emotional never ceases to amaze me and it's just so tragic when it's parents it's so tragic um fuck you sunshine writes about uh, her depression that feeling you get when you watch someone stand up and do something as simple as wash a dish in the kitchen sink and you think to yourself where the hell do they get the energy or motivation to do that then you think wow something's wrong with me it's a freaking dish I get it. I I remember when I was at my lowest, 
one of the things that made me realize that I needed help was I remember one time looking at dishes in the sink and thinking, I will put a shotgun in my mouth before I wash those dishes. Um, Snapshot from her life. Sunshine makes me anxious. Not always, but on days when the weather is especially spectacular, I feel that jolt of anxiety. It starts in my throat and moves downward through my chest, expanding as it spreads outward in a sensation similar to that of drinking ice-cold water first thing in the morning. Leftover PTSD from all the beautiful days I've slept away or wasted. Days spent looking at the outside world through a square glass window pane outlined in painted white wood. Seeing the sunlight filtered through green leaves that sway gently in a light breeze playing peekaboo with that perfect blue sky. Seeing it, but from the inside. Seeing it and feeling guilty and anxious for wasting it. Feeling guilty and anxious, but still being too tired and hopeless to get out of bed or off the couch to go outside and enjoy it. My last catatonic depressive episode was two years ago. It's been a long road, but I feel better than I have in years. Overall, I take care of my physical and mental health. I go to therapy. I fostered and rebuilt relationships with friends. My diet is better, and I get outside hiking or rock climbing almost every week. But it's been sunny and gorgeous for the past five days in a row, and the anxiety and guilt are still there. I've been going nonstop, and I'm fucking exhausted. The scars are deep. Maybe I'll never be able to truly relax again on a sunny day. Or maybe I'll move to Seattle. It is crazy the things that 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 trigger us. And um, yeah, I feel guilty sometimes too on a sunny day. But I don't know. I don't know if I could handle the the clouds of Seattle or Portland. Um, but the summers there are fucking awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Doubting My Sanity writes about her bipolar. Knowing I could get out of the hole if I just had one more drink, scratch ticket, eight ball, and a $10 bill. Snapshot from her life. Trying to explain to my fiance that by, that by depression, oh, that my depression and anxiety are lifelong struggles uh, for me and seeing his face visibly sink as he realizes that since he proposed, my depression and anxiety are now his lifelong struggles too. And he comments to make the podcast better. I'd love to hear from people, maybe shorter segments, that have come from stable homes but are still fucked up. I think it would show people that it's okay if they had all right upbringings but are still struggling with mental health. That discussion point of giving yourself permission to feel messed up even if you didn't have something horrible happen to you. Haven't heard anything like that on the show before. Um, uh, actually, we did a, a little while ago. I think it was maybe six months ago with um, Dr. Janice Webb, J-O-N-I-C-E. And um, she has a book called Running on Empty. And her episode on this podcast is all about emotional neglect, the stuff that's under the radar that isn't traumatic, but it's, it's, um, it's, I don't think I've done another episode that had as many responses and comforted as many people as that episode did because there are so many people out there who view their emotional and mental struggles as their fault and i think when they hear the damage that just emotional neglect can be from well-meaning parents 
it begins to make sense why they feel the way they do. And it's not to blame the parent. It's so that they can give them per- give themselves permission to start feeling the feelings instead of constantly trying to shut them down. So check it out, Dr. Janice Webb. Uh, my cat's butthole, not hole, hole, writes um, a snapshot from uh, her depression. And this, this one's actually really, to me, more about love addiction, even though she doesn't say it. She writes, I constantly need attention in my relationship. My supportive and loving boyfriend is so good to me, but when he pays attention to his friends and video games, I feel shut out and ignored. I feel like I'm needy and annoying. I don't really have many hobbies, and although I have many good friends, I rarely hang out with them and struggle to maintain my own social life outside of my relationship. So when my boyfriend is doing his own thing, I get upset with him and want him to pay attention to me. I feel selfish and burdensome. In an attempt to fill this emotional void, I sometimes feel in the relationship I have recently been... uh, I sometimes feel in the relationship... Oh, I... Sometimes the, a comma can make all the difference in the world. Um, so my boyfriend's doing his own thing. I guess I wouldn't want to pay him attention. I feel selfish and burns him. And attempt to, uh, in an attempt to fill this emotional void, uh, I sometimes feel in the relationship. I have been recently talking to a male co-worker of, worker of mine. We are both fucked up and constantly seek attention from our partners. Uh, he has a girlfriend. I guess my coworker and I have recently become emotionally dependent on one another since it is lacking in our own relationships. My boyfriend recently found out that I was talking to this other person and he was very upset with me. He was so upset that he even cried because at one point I told this other person that I wanted him when I was drunk. My boyfriend and I made amends, but now everything is back to the way it was before. Right now, he's playing a video game with his best friend, like usual, and I'm laying in the dark in our bedroom, tempted to text my coworker again. I don't know what to do. I don't want this to turn into an emotional affair, but I'm afraid it is too late. And my thought when I, when I read this is, first of all, you should read the book Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody. And the second thing is, um, if you don't do anything about it, it's not going to go away. And... Um, my opinion, this is not about your, this boyfriend, that this is a pattern that you're addicted to, because I think you're probably afraid of emotional intimacy, and the only people that feel safe are the people that are unavailable, either because they're in another relationship, or they're always distracted, and um, and so it's like catnip um, to the person who actually um, is made nauseous if they eat catnip, but smelling it is like, you know, fantastic. I'm already hating that analogy. This is uh, a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by in the lost and found bin. And she's gay. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, at my first job, on the first day, I was 15, the man who owned the place walked me into the kitchen to show me how to make the tea and forced me against the stove and shoved his hands down my pants. 
his hand down my pants. He couldn't reach anything due to his fat hands and my tight jeans. He tried to fumble with the button on my jeans. In this moment, I ran out of the kitchen and out onto the street. I then walked the seven miles home in hailing rain in a t-shirt because I didn't grab my coat on the way out. When I got home, my mother screamed at me, wondering why I was home early from the new job, and immediately accused me of getting fired for being a stupid piece of shit. I gotta say, she sounds like a terrific lady. I don't know why you didn't hear her out. Why you immediately just uh, shut down uh, your mom trying to help by calling you a stupid piece of shit. What you need to do is you need to look for the compliment inside the stupid piece of shit. Because inside every piece of shit is a diamond. Uh, yeah, your mom is uh, <laughs> a sick person, as is that guy. Uh, anyway, continuing, she's been physically and emotionally uh, abused. And this is this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this survey. Um, because this is a classic example, what she writes here, of how we minimize our abuse. Um and she writes, I was never badly physically abused. I didn't get the bruises I saw on some of my friends at school, but my dad was a big fan of shoving. He'd shove me down and then wait until I had nearly gotten back on my feet, then shove me down again and again and again until I could stumble away enough to get to my bedroom and close the door and hold it close, closed. He'd then bust the door down and stand in the doorway screaming so loudly that I'd feel his spit spraying across the room. He'd eventually stop when his voice got hoarse and he couldn't scream anymore. My mother would just slap me. Sometimes I deserved it. Sometimes it would be for, quote, telling lies about my father's abuse. There's more. My parents are heavy drinkers, so assume what you will from that. The rest is pretty much just textbook emotional neglect. Uh, you know what I have to say, though, that is fucking amazing, and I see this so rarely, is that somebody who was raised in that kind of abuse, that they didn't freeze in that in that moment. Um, it's it's very unusual, and um, it's not that uh, not that the trauma wasn't already done by what that f- fucking guy did, um, but I just I, I found that that interesting. Um, and I'm just, uh, the image of your dad pushing you down every time you would try to get up is so heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. (sighs) That is just, fuck And there, and there you say, I was never badly physically abused. I mean, that is, that is what our brain does as we go. Other people had it worse. And I think the only way to heal is to really just see the truth of what it really is and feel it and mourn it and cry and let people love you while you're doing it. Um, darkest thoughts my dad is getting older and isn't as strong as he used to be sometimes I think about how easy it would be to beat the living shit out of him and he wouldn't be strong enough to fight me off 
to be honest, I think right now a lot of us are thinking, if you do do that, please take a video and upload it. And I got to be honest, I would probably use his cries for help as my ringtone. But do not quote me on that. No, he's he's a sick man, and that doesn't help anything, do it. Shut up. It's not fucking moralizing, you fuckface. Just read the surveys. A DJ voice came. Came for a little visit. Rockin' the Quad Cities, Paul. You're a piece of shit. Darkest Secrets. I've had some addictions, serious addictions in the past. Everyone knows I'm clean now. Occasionally, every three to four months, I isolate myself for two to three days and get as fucked up as possible. I wouldn't call that clean. Or maybe you just mean right now you happen to be clean. Um, that's called binge. A binger. That's what my dad was. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I love it when I have a sexual partner that enjoys being choked because I love the power I feel from choking them. I'm safe as much as one can be in that situation and would never push it too far. But the feeling of power that I could hurt them if I wanted to is like a drug. And if you can explore that with somebody who's willing and uh, either enjoys it or enjoys you enjoying it, that'd be fucking awesome. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dad, you need to quit being such a pussy and get help. Mom, you need to wake the fuck up and form your thoughts. Form your own thoughts for once. Uh, if you share these things with others, I've mentioned things but will never tell anyone. I would feel like I'm causing drama or asking for help, and I hate asking for help. You deserve help. You need help. We all do. And there is no shame in it. And... Nothing changes if, if nothing changes. And you, you're you worth it. You are worth it. And I would love to see you open up to somebody. Um, it's amazing how much we can heal if we uh, find a safe place to share and let people love us. This is an awful moment filled out by oh, your guys' names. Cupid stunt. <laughs> or maybe she means Cupid, but obviously the Cupid stunt. Uh, she writes, I got breast implants 15 years ago when I was a stripper. I hated them from the day I got them. And as I got older, they became unbearable with pain and size. Uh, the National Health Service, I think she's British, has refused to remove them. Well, she says NHS, I think it's National Health Service, has refused to remove them after after several attempts of asking. I made myself a promise that if I gave it another year and the answer was still no, I would pop them myself. They said no, I did it. Having complex BPD is absolutely, without a doubt, my superpower of doing extreme weird things that seem completely rational to me but leave other people speech, speechless. On the upside, I feel free for the first time in 15 years. I love my boobies. By the way, I got my hypodermic needles and syringes at the livestock farm store. I ensured that I had a sterile environment and all that. I went to my GP the next day and got the all clear. Obviously, I had saline implants and apparently it's safe for the empty bags to remain. The thing I don't understand is why my therapists and doctors didn't believe me when I said I would do it myself. Thank you for that, and I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're okay. Um, and I think we probably would have all enjoyed a video of that as well. 
Uh, maybe we could have done like a montage of uh, her pushing her dad down and you doing a uh, titty fountain. Uh, Maha writes uh, about her depression, anxiety, and anorexia and uh, other compulsive behaviors. Um, this is a sh- snapshot from her life. She writes, when I was sitting in my room with no lights on one afternoon around six, looking out my window at the sunset, and I thought, I'm bored, maybe I should cut myself again for no reason other than that I had nothing better to do. I then realized how big of a problem my self-harm was. I'm glad you realized that. And this is, you know, the, the what you just described just really... Uh, I felt it because that is when I was a kid that is how my depression would express itself is I would lay on my bed in my bedroom and I don't really ever remember it doing it in the summer when it was sunny out but man when it would be November and the sun was just going down and the grass was brown um, it, it was just like this it was like a coma. It, 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 I don't know how to describe it, but I would, I would just remember thinking to myself, "You've been staring at the light bulb for forty-five minutes. What are you, what are you doing?" But something about it felt so soothing. Yeah. And there's something too about the fall that just, when you're depressed in the fall, that just feels like. It almost feels like you and the weather are are have found each other's eyes from across the room, and you're like your soulmates. You know the gray sky and the and the blowing leaves. It's uh, it's like you can empathize with the leaves because you're like, I get it, man. I'm tired too. I'm barely hanging on. Look at you letting go and falling off. I wish I had the guts to. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by therapist about to be in therapy and a snapshot from her life her her issues are anxiety uh alcoholism love addiction and uh snapshot from her life she writes uh my son and and this happened a few years ago my son is just five months old it's a week before christmas and my husband at the time tells me he's leaving me for another woman twice my age making twice our income um normally it's for somebody uh, half half your age um So at least that part's refreshing. She writes, oh, wow, I probably should have gone to therapy then because perhaps I could have made the past six years of my son's life better if I could just stop resenting and hating his father for what he did. Ironically, I'm a mental health therapist helping clients overcome this very thing. Why can't I just practice what I preach? And, you know, uh, my thought is, and again, I'm not a therapist, but I did uh, one time get a smattering of applause one night doing stand-up for drunk people in a town that I can't remember. So I think I'm qualified to weigh, weigh in on this. But my thought is, in my in my experience, being on the, you know, the uh, client side of the couch is, and in support groups, is it was in the support groups of feeling um, the emotional connection to people who shared my story that allowed me to let go of my resentment and my anger 
and my sadness and all the, the negative emotions. I was able to let some of it out, a lot of it out in therapy, but the real, real cleaning of it uh, came in in the support groups. Um, because the other thing I had to do in the support groups was I had to see my part in things. And until I wrote it down on paper, it was always completely somebody else's fault. And once I was able to see that I had brought something to the table that was less than ideal, I was able to have some compassion for that person I was resentful at. And to me, in a nutshell, that's the basis of trying to trying to be a spiritual uh, person, um, which is certainly hard, but that's my two cents. Uh, this is an email I got um, from Dr. Uh, Taylor Daw, and he writes, uh, Dear lucky winner, we are pleased to inform you of the result of the computer email balloting system drawn in our online bonanza from the prestigious Lotto Max Anniversary Email Drawn Promotion 2016, an international program held on the 1st of June 2016 in United Kingdom, which your email address was attached to the following informations, which consequently won in the second category and has therefore been approved for a lump sum payment of 850,000 euros, which which payment fall under the Africa Regional Payment Center in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Um, I, I got to say, once I get this money, the first thing I'm going to run out and buy is I'm going to buy them a period and a couple of commas. Um, but this is very exciting. I mean, I talked about how I need a bigger budget for the podcast. 850,000 euros. If you would just give me a second, I'm just going to text, uh, uh, tweet people this so that they can know how exciting this is. Um, just received 800 and 50,000 euros financial issues are over send um oh and then there's some more note due to mix up of some numbers and names we ask that you keep your winning information confidential until your claim has been processed and your money remitted to you this is part of our security protocol to avoid double claiming and unwarranted abuse of this program by some participants. I just lost 850,000 fucking euros. This is very disappointing. I think the only way to soothe myself is reading more surveys or staring into Herbert's butthole. I'm going to read some surveys. Although I have to tell you at this stage, Herbert's butthole is in the, uh, I don't know what the, what was the name we gave it for at the uh, curtain stage where you can't see it. What do we call it? Uh, shut up and read. This is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I have no joy and I must smile. Oh, none of us, none of us can relate to that one. Uh, he is straight. He's in his 40s. He was raised in a totally chaotic environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, several times when I was a preteen, 10 to 12, but I might be uh, wrong on the age, uh, while visiting my stepdad's family overnight, uh, I shared a bed uh, with a young 20-ish step-aunt who convinced me to finger her to orgasm or I would be forced to sleep on the floor uh, when where supposedly roaches roamed. 
Uh, she tried to get me to remove my clothes, but I refused and continued to finger her. Eventually, we stopped visiting, except on holidays, where my abuser would act and talk to me as if nothing happened. Later, during my preteen slash early teenager years, and while living with my grandmother and an uncle who also lived there, he would forcibly hold me down while fondling my genitals. I wanted to tell someone, but he used the threat that I would have to move to another school and would lose all my friends. To me, my friends were my whole life, and the thought of losing them kept me silent. Even to this day, at 30, I moved away from my hometown and only rarely visit my parents because the thought of going back to that town brings up too many disgusting memories, to the point where I end up staying inside the guest room, not leaving to explore the city I grew up in. To this day, I don't believe my parents know about the abuse, and I have no interest in telling them. Just staying away from the city is enough to cope with it. I hope you're talking to somebody about this. I know I sound like a broken record, but um, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? From the ages of 12 to 18, I lived with my maternal grandmother. Um, My grandmother was a racist, untrusting, super religious Catholic who was addicted to codeine meds and was very mercurial in in her interactions with me. I gotta tell you, I think she sounds like a great package. She's, uh, You've got um, racist, you've got untrusting, you got super religious. For a lot of people, the dream would end there, but she's also addicted to codeine meds and mercurial. That's, a, that's five. That's a five, Pete. Uh, she would shower affection towards me one minute, then berate me the next, calling me lazy, good for nothing evil and cursing me out every chance she got. She would put me down when I showed that I had gotten decent grades, which in hindsight is probably because she was uneducated and the thought of someone succeeding in life was unbearable to her. Oftentimes, when we would get into an argument, she would try to taunt me to hit her. I never did because I knew she was doing it so she would immediately, she could immediately call the police on me. Other times, after an argument, she would come to my room while I was asleep and sit on the edge of my bed, never speaking. She would do it in the hopes that I would wake up and ask for forgiveness from her. This continued until one night when I decided uh, to pretend to sleep. She tried to sit on the bed a little harder, thinking that I just wasn't awake yet. When I refused to respond, she left my room and never tried it again. My final act of defiance towards her was when I was invited to hang with my friends the night before graduation. At first, she was okay with it until she saw that my friends were all white. She then exploded in my face, calling my friends honkies and tried to prevent me from joining them. But something snapped in me. Maybe it was the thought of my friends being verbally attacked as opposed to myself that prompted me. And I told her to fuck off and left her house for the last time, joining my friends and only explaining the basics to them about my predicament. I went back to my parents after the incident where they informed me that my grandmother had thrown all my stuff out. I never felt more free. Last I heard, she may or may not be homeless because no one in her family talks to her anymore. I'm not ashamed to admit that a weight seemed to lift from my shoulders thinking about her as a failed human being. Any positive experiences with her uh, or any of the abusers? There were many positive experiences with my grandmother, but it was mainly in service to her own ego. As I consider this question, I've come to the realization that I was simply a teenage codependent to her chaos and self-loathing. That makes sense to me. Um, and for people that are are narcissists like your grandmother, 
um, they they can be loving and or I should say appear loving and supportive and all that other stuff when it's convenient for them because I then I think it helps soothe some of the shame that they feel from their outbursts and um, and and they probably can't see that what kids really need is consistency you know giving them uh, you know nine days of fucking trauma and chaos and then one day of ice cream um, is is not what a the the one day of ice cream does not make up for the uh, the nine days of uh, I'm too tired to come up with a word darkest thoughts uh, I've had violent rape fantasies where I'm the aggressor and the victim shows the same feelings and facial structure that I probably had while being forced to endure my own abuses other times I've had fantasies of being dominated by the opposite sex then held and caressed by my attacker that's funny I, when I confronted what, what, and I'm sorry if I'm talking about this uh, too much, um, but I, I know the, how important it was to me when other people said me too. So um, when I finally gave weight to what had happened to me, one of the most powerful fantasies um, because one of the things that my mom did was she gave, among a host of other things, she gave me a bath that felt really sketchy when I was like 11 or 12 and I felt tricked, but I became aroused. And, um, and I just felt, uh, yeah. And when I finally gave weight to all of these things, suddenly I had this intense sexual fantasy of me being that age again and it being either a different mom or, you know, maybe a girl on the block who was older than me that I had a crush on. Um, and they would take it further and they would bring me to orgasm. And then the last part of the fantasy is after they teach me how to orgasm, they wrap me in a towel and hold me while I while I cry. And the the imagining the crying while they while they hold me is as powerful a part of the fantasy as the, you know, getting the hand job or you know whatever you want to you want to call it. Um, and here's another thing that's similar to what you share, and the 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 vibe of it in my fantasy is that it's being pretended that it's not a sexual thing, that this is very clinical, this is how your body works, I'm not enjoying this, because that was the 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 vibe that I got from my mom, was that this was just her doing her motherly duties. And, um, and so it's... It's just interesting how related to the original abuse our fantasies can be sometimes how much it's us wanting to get in a time machine and go back and have a redo but have control you know by choosing the details of it you know which to me is a form of of control um Darkest Secrets. Once I fondled my younger brother's ears by placing my lips on them from behind. To this day, I don't know why I did this as opposed uh, to doing something more invasive, 
but I felt, uh, hold on one second, ashamed and horrified. He didn't react because his focus was completely tuned in on the video game he was playing, so I quietly went back to my room and never spoke about it again. Hey, for a kid that has been through what you've been through, um, that, dude, if that's your darkest secret, good on you. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having a harem where there's a field of women who worship me and do any sexual act I demand of them. This makes me concerned because I feel that this is a reflection of the codependency relationship I had with my grandmother, but now I would be in the position of power. It makes me sad and hopeless for my future. Oh, buddy, don't. Do not. That's your brain's way of trying to cope. Fucking enjoy it. Enjoy it. You know, unless it's it, it, it becomes an obsession that is robbing other areas of your life, fucking explore it, you know? Have your partner wear a veil, uh, you know, uh, what, what, I don't know what goes on in a harem, roast a pig, uh, you know, do something, but um, do not, do not beat yourself up about that, man. You just, you just sound like such a beautiful, sensitive man, and I just want to give you a hug, Um what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I have a friend that has wanted to know what happened to me back in my past, and I've wanted to tell her everything, but convince myself that uh, I'm doing all I'm doing is unloading on someone who has already had enough burdens on their plate, and I'm old enough that I should have had these issues resolved by now. I'm only bullshitting myself, I know, but that's how I justify it. Why don't you try writing it down, maybe taking some kind of baby step, um, or as I've as I've mentioned before to other people, get this episode, cue it up to the part where I start reading your survey, and play it for them. Um, what if anything do you wish for? A loving relationship with a woman who I can be comfortable sharing my past with. I wish I could believe that there are women who are attracted to me and not convince myself there's something wrong with them for being attracted to me. Dude, that's, that is so common for those of us. It's so hard. And then the, the ones that do like us, then we, we look at them like, what's the matter with you? How could you, how could you settle for this? And then, you know, sometimes we lose their, their respect. That's why healing is so important. Um, have you shared these things with others? Yes, once during a conversation with a friend, I jokingly mentioned that I haven't had sex in several years, and she chuckled and said that made her sad. I continued to laugh, but I hurt inside and vowed to not share these things with others. Oh, dude, there's so many of us survivors that go long stretches of time. Some people, it's decades without having sex again. Um how do you feel after writing these things down? Not much different. I've come to terms with my situation a while back. I'm sure things would be different if I were saying this to my friends as opposed to being an anonymous person doing a survey. My guess is that I'll end up a bawling baby from the release I'd get from that conversation. And that would be awesome, man. That would be awesome. And somebody could hold you and you could cry and it would be just like that thing that sexually 
you're longing for, but not in a sexual contact context. That <sighs> thank you for that. Thank you. And I hope you I hope you get to hear me uh, read that because I'd like to I'd like to hear from you. Um, this is an awful moment filled out by uh, I don't know if it's Kirsten or Kirstine. And she writes, first appointment with a therapist. I think it went well. She gave me some homework. I have to write down when my boundaries are crossed, when I do stuff I don't actually want to do and work on structure, get up at the same time every day and go swimming at least once a week. Most importantly, she told me uh, that no one does anything to me. I let them do it. We arranged a new appointment in a week and I was on my way to face the world. By the way, I would say that there are some exceptions to that if you were being mugged or robbed or raped or something like that. But yes, if you're talking about everyday life-to-life little things, yes, I would agree with that. We arranged to stop trying to control the world, Paul. Oh, way to go, Paul. We arranged a new appointment in a week and I was on my way to face the world feeling a little lighter. 200 meters from the clinic, I run into somebody from the Danish Heart Foundation, and this guy wants me to sign up for monthly donations. I'm a, fi- I'm a student on a tight budget and tell him, uh, tell him so. He understands, but talks me into giving a one-time donation, even though I don't actually want to. Not even 10 minutes after my first appointment, I've already done something I didn't want to. I laughed all the way home. That's so awesome. And that's such an important part of of us getting better is, t- uh, how did somebody say it one time? Um, taking your recovery seriously, but not taking yourself seriously. This is a happy moment filled out by Pinky. And she writes, I came home and found my old cat sleeping at the foot of my bed, completely relaxed. She woke up, woke up and greeted me. I petted her and touching that silky fur, I realized that yes, there are still reasons for me to stay alive. Another one, Yesterday, I was walking in the park where I used to go with my ex-lover who dumped me suddenly a year ago. The park was so beautiful, the way the old trees are in late summer. The weather was warm and it felt good to walk all by myself. And I walked past the bench where we kissed last summer. And seeing that place didn't hurt so bad anymore. It was just a sad but sweet memory. I love moments like that, man. I love the little ones. The little ones that just... uh The Sad Brains Hotel and Resort, <laughs> I love you guys, writes about his dysthymia. I didn't realize until very recently that it has silently sucked all the little details out of my life. Smells, sensations, little joys, the satisfaction of self-care. It's fucked. About his anxiety, it feels like the yawning chasm in my chest is trying to give birth to the boulder in the pit of my stomach. That is is beautiful. Um, and dude, I get both of them. Although I don't, I don't ex- experience the physical anxiety the way people do, but the depression one, uh, and it doesn't have to stay that way. Just keep trying. 
Any ideas to make the, uh, oh no, a snapshot from his life. I was feeling so alone in the middle of a huge event in the center of my city one night that I was simultaneously furious at all the people out having fun with their friends and feeling so exposed and self-conscious that I completely disconnected from my body. The thought of taking the train home filled my head with such disgust and anxiety that I walked the 10 miles home and didn't even feel tired or sore afterwards. Just sad, angry, and lonely my three friends in this whole stupid world. Any comments to make the podcast better? Take the opportunity for a guitar solo now and then. Melt some faces. I think you're right. I think you're right. I just have to figure out a key that I'm going to shred, that I'm going to shred in. And I want to grow my hair out a little bit. Um, and I want to tease it. I think that's a given that I'm just, I'm going to use a full can of hairspray. Uh find some leopard spandex pants, let my gut hang just a little bit over the spandex, which would not be a problem, and uh, then find a nice lady shirt uh, that's a little too small for me and uh, fucking lay into it. Lay into some, uh, some tired blues riffs. Oh, yeah. Over-distorted, over-compressed, way too much uh, echo. Fuck yeah. That is, by the way, there is nothing I hate more than hair metal. Nothing. Uh, Crafty writes about her depression. Socializing feels like being on stage with a full audience and screwing up all my lines slash music slash whatever. About her anxiety, even though I already know that I worry too much, I still fill my brain with worst case scenarios because if I don't think them, they will certainly come true. That's great. Thank you, Crafty. This is a happy moment from Chunky Munchkin, and she writes, After a suicide on my college campus, I decided to start an out-of-the-darkness walk. This was close to me because I've lost family members to suicide and made multiple attempts myself. A ton of work went into this. For months leading up to the walk, we would sit in the dining halls and advertise the walk. People would come up and thank me for starting the walk and share their connection with the cause. But the best feeling was one day this guy walks by and holds up his arm slash fist. Of course, my mind automatically went to the worst. Is this guy threatening me? What is his problem? And then I realized he was showing me that he was wearing the rubber cause bracelet I had given out at the tables months before. That single moment of solidarity and proof that something I did had stuck filled me with joy I can't even describe. This was making a difference. I was making a difference. Oh, that's so beautiful. And and to me, like those are the moments that that I live for now are the ones that just tell that part of my brain that's always trying to tell me, you blew it, you wasted time, you made the wrong decisions, your future's fucked. When I do those things, those nice things that, that, that give me a feeling of meaning and purpose, that mean part of my brain shuts up. And that to me is like the goal. That is the goal. Uh, she also has a uh, struggle in a sentence. And she writes uh, about her depression. Um, 
postpartum depression. Uh, sitting on my bed, bleeding, naked, trying to get the hang of breastfeeding, feeling like a cow, and tears dripping on my son's face because I can't stop crying. Wow. That is... Well, I think Ivy just said it all. Wow, that is a picture, man. I am I can't imagine how overwhelming that must feel. Wow. Thank you. And then about her bulimia, uh, sitting outside in the grass in the pitch black dark, puking in a bag so that no one will hear, see, or find the evidence. Um And then this snapshot from her life, um, she was a sex crime victim. She writes, after reporting, I filed for compensation for counseling through my state, state's Office of Victim Services. Two months later, I got a letter saying, we have found you are not a victim of a crime. Shit, even the victim services people are denying my repeated sexual assaults. Yeah, again, Ivy weighing in. Um, that's the best, you know, I understand shit can fall through cracks in a bureaucracy and that something that is fucking horrifying can sometimes not have enough evidence for it to be considered a crime or prosecutable, but to, to for them to use such insensitive language like that is just mind-boggling. Um You know, I would be interested in knowing what state this is and maybe start, start starting some type of a Twitter campaign or something to um, bring attention to how damaging that is to a, a, a survivor to, well, we, we know that um, what happened to you is real and valid and... Um, But that still sucks. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey uh, filled out by snoozed, <laughs> losed. And uh, she is straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And she writes about 10 years ago, uh, while having drinks with my brother, I started telling him about a time that our mother, while changing me, and while changing me, pulled down my stockings and reached up in between my thighs and touched me. She laughed and told me that every girl has a tickle button and continued to touch me there to see if I would giggle too. It only just then dawned uh, on me how perverse that was, and years later, how it affected my sexual development. Ever since then, I have loathed my femininity. I've never felt comfortable being alone with my mother or with sex. I was three years old at the time, and it's the first memory that I can remember from childhood when this world suddenly became a very uncomfortable and untrustworthy place. And by the way, if it seems like I have just purposely, um, you know, uh, lopsided the surveys tonight with ones where there are um, uh, female perpetrators, uh, believe it or not, this... This is in the span of, I'd, I'd say this survey gets taken maybe three, four times a day. 
Um, this is just in the span of going through maybe 10 surveys, the ones I've read today. So this is to let you know how common these things are. Um, this, this is just a random consecutive um, picking from about a dozen surveys, these shame and secrets ones. Well, I think I'm reading six maybe today. Um, and yes, I do have that, that uh, self-critical part of myself that is worried that you're going to judge me based on the surveys that I choose. And then I have some type of, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, my head is a busy place. Um, and I've mentioned before to people who have been sexually uh, abused by their mothers um, that I know of a and participate in a group uh, that we started um, for those of us who have experienced that. And if you'd like more information, um, email me. Ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, she's been emotionally abused. My parents were very religious Christians. Even though my mother molested me as a toddler, I still had to, quote, honor her by putting up with her passive aggression and manipulation. I had to concede to round after round of fruitless round of reconciliation counseling until I got past uh, my anger towards her. Because I refused to suffer through that painful and frustrating experience again, my father emancipated me from the family last year, and yet they continue to reach out to me on birthdays. When I was a child, the only thing I ever wanted was to be an actress. My mother auditioned me for her theater company, but rejected me because I was, quote, too insecure. Wow. Your mom's ability to project is masterful. Uh, I was eight years old. 30 years later, after a 10-year career in film and TV, my mother told me she still thought I was untalented and would never make it. Even though she has my headshot up in her office and brags to her co-workers about me whenever I'm on TV. Even though my parents made me and my brother sign contracts when we were 15 and 16, declaring that they were unfit to parent us so we had to care for ourselves, they make me feel bad for not wanting to spend time with them on holidays. I could go on, but then I'd have nothing left for my novel. Darkest thoughts. I fear that I am a poisonous toxin in every relationship I get into. I can't keep a job for more than eight months, a relationship for more than a couple of years, and a pet for more than a few weeks. I feel like I am justified in severing these relationships, but deep down, deep down I feel like I am crazy and irrational and will never be able to commit to anything meaningful. Darkest Secrets. It was Christmas time and I was anxious about going home. To cope, I drank a bottle of wine, then ate a handful of laxatives that I used to purge out of guilt uh, after starving myself for days on a religious fast. I felt I'd failed. I woke up from a blackout and ran to the bathroom to relieve myself, only to blackout again, hitting my head on the doorknob as I went down. I immediately went into a seizure, then my body went cold and still, uh, as I felt my heart slow down, then stop. The wind left my lungs, and the only thing I remember thinking is, perfect love casts out fear, and that my body literally willed itself to life as I vowed to figure out out that the what the hell that meant my heart started pumping 
Heat returned to my bones and I crawled back to my bed to sleep, waking up hours later with a splitting headache, a bruised eye, but otherwise okay. And that's as far as she got in the survey. Um, thank you. You know, I, I always knew that there was sadism in the world. Uh, and, and I don't mean, I'm not uh, equating the sadism that is in people's sexual fantasies. I'm talking about the sadism that is inflicted on, on people who are vulnerable. I always knew that it existed in the world, but until I started doing this show, I never realized the, the extent of it. Um, this is a happy moment, thank God, uh, filled out by a scout. And uh, Scout is gender fluid, and they write, I've been having a rough couple of months. I just graduated high school, I'm out of a job, and I'm struggling with depression and what I believe is avoidant personality disorder. But a few weeks ago, I was visiting my older sister and her family, who I don't get to see very often because we live so far apart. One day, we were driving to town together to go have dinner, and she put me in charge of the music, so I started blasting Sublime's Caress Me Down. Um... I started blasting Sublime, Caress Me Down came up on the playlist, and she and I just started belting out the lyrics as we rode down the twisting country roads on the way to the city. The wind was funneling past us as we both sang out in Spanish at the top of our lungs. And for the first time in several months, I felt free. I felt like I was home, and like nothing except Sublime and being myself mattered. When the song ended, we kept singing sublime songs all the way into town until Santeria ended right as we parked to go have dinner together. It was one of the greatest moments I've ever had. Last night, in the middle of a panic attack, she texted me to tell me that she was thinking about that moment and about how much fun she had, and I started crying even harder, but now out of happiness. My sister is an absolute blessing in my life, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That is so awesome that you have that. <laughs> Ivy is doing a lot of a lot of uh, uh, contributing tonight. That is just such a beautiful survey. Thank you for that. That just that's nice to have the upbeat palate cleansers after the uh, all the dark stuff. Um, and you know what I really like too is I like when you guys and I'm not asking you to do this, but I love when you send me emails letting me know that you, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but this, this, the heavy surveys um, don't turn you off from, from listening um, because I worry. I could say about what, but let's just leave it at I worry. Um, I worry about everything, but I worry that I'm losing listeners because I'm, I'm you know, I make the show too heavy. But this is the stuff that I want to talk about, and it's my podcast. So go fuck yourself. Haven't said it in a while. Actually, a little dust came out of my mouth when I just said that. Um, Paranoid Anxiety Guy writes about his OCD. At night, you feel guilty and irresponsible for lying down in bed, even after spending 30 minutes checking the apartment. Even after all that checking, something might still be on or unlocked and you're going to suffer financially, possibly to the point of homelessness. Now it's time to check both alarm clocks for a few minutes. That that has to be a handful, man. I know all mental illnesses are, but 
Um, I don't think I've ever really had that kind of uh, checking, double-checking OCD. Oh my God, my sentences are way too long. I'm a worthless failure, writes about her anxiety. Listening to the podcast on my phone and the moment Paul pauses in the middle of a sentence and I freeze in complete terror, then I'm actually going to get a phone call. Yeah, I get that, man. That that feeling like when you're listening to something and all of a sudden it fades out and you're like, motherfucker, responsibility. I thought I had escaped your clutches. Uh, snapshot from her life. Hiding that I drink from my parents even though I'm 22 and they would most likely be fine with it. But I have to be the perfect child, the one that doesn't cause trouble. Here's a suggestion. If if you're afraid that, that they're going to judge you for it, um, here's what you do. You say, hey, mom and dad, would you mind if I went on to the front lawn and took a huge shit? And they're probably going to say, yeah, and then say, okay, well, how about if I just open a bottle of wine? See, and then it won't seem so bad. I've never tried that. Actually, you know what? That's what they used to do in the the early days of Saturday Night Live. Actually, I'm sure they probably still do it, is they... When they would write a joke in that they knew was too edgy for the censors, they would write something before it that was a hundred times worse that they never expected to get in there. And so the censor would cut the first one out and then let the one they actually wanted in uh, after that. So that's what I was kind of going for. I don't know. But put in whatever your inappropriate thing is. Uh, you know, take a shit. Uh, what else is there? Whack off? Take a shit? There's got to be a third thing. Um, I was going to put down a band by saying, I don't want to take down bands I don't like. I'll take down a genre. Fuck, fuck hair metal. This is a happy moment from Sullen Artist. And she writes, I've been sewing for about three months and I made a beautiful gathered rectangle skirt for myself. With the fabric left over, I made a matching one for my two-year-old niece. I tried it on her and she refused to take it off the rest of the day because she loved it so much. I've never felt so proud of anything I've made before until I saw her cute little smile when she saw that we matched. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I think the forum could be utilized more. Um, I cannot disagree with that. Um, if you have suggestions on ways that the forum, um, I, I suppose the reason that I don't utilize it more is I can't even keep up with reading the surveys and sorting through them and organizing them and picking which sections of them I'm going to read. Um, so, um, yes. So that's, if you have any suggestions, um, send them to me. Chelsea writes about her depression. I would have the same emotional response to someone throwing me a birthday party and someone shooting a nail through my hand with a nail gun. (laughs) That is awesome. Um... Snapshot from her life. A couple of months ago, I knew I needed to eat dinner and really wanted waffles with maple syrup. I hadn't purchased maple syrup for myself, 
probably ever, actually. I went to the store specifically for those items and was walking around, syrup bottle in hand, and had to pause in one of the aisles because I was filled with so much panic and guilt that I was about to burst into tears. This definitely wasn't the first time I've nearly cried in a grocery store. As an aside, I did buy the syrup and I did eat the waffles. Eating disorder recovery uh, win that time. Um, which made me think that there's got to be, somebody should, There, I'm sure there are other people that panic when they're in grocery stores. I've read dozens of uh, surveys of people that have had panic attacks in grocery stores. So maybe somebody uh, profit on this by coming up with a guide uh, for uh, panic attacks out in public. Maybe uh, call it uh, the anxious shopper or, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, you write down like what's the best aisle to get to if you're going to have a panic attack, which I think personally would be uh, where the marshmallows are. Because then you kneel down. They're usually down low. You kneel down low and you just squeeze the fuck out of them until uh, until that panic goes away. Or uh, maybe you go to the the you know the chicken rotisserie and uh, you try to ride it like a Ferris wheel, which of course you'll fail at but you'll be concentrating so hard on trying to ride it, you'll forget about your problems. Again, I'm not a therapist, but I did, uh, speaking of chicken, I did cook chicken on basic cable for 16 years. And I would sometimes put gel in my hair, which has got to count for something. Um, You could also have uh, the depressed chopper. Now that I could contribute to. Actually, that would be a very very, uh, short guide to uh, shopping, it would either be uh, don't leave house the, the house or it doesn't matter what aisle you go and lay down in because none of it fucking matters anyway. I didn't need to add that fuck. That last fuck was really gratuitous. Um, Slug Complex writes uh, about her depression and anxiety. Uh, She gives us a snapshot of her life. My daughter is getting married next month. I want to give myself the option of not going because two people who raped me will be honored guests there, my mother and my ex-husband. I am going, but it will make me physically sick and probably take weeks to recover. Uh, I love my daughter. I'm so sorry. And again, this I did not cherry pick these these surveys to make it look like... uh, you know, disproportionately. Um, but there is a part of me that feels comfort when I when I read. Um, well, I, I you know, of course, I'm sad and angry that the other person had to experience that. But there is a part of me that feels like I found my tribe. And I know that probably sounds fucked up, but I think other survivors understand that because we've been alone in our heads with shame for so much of our lives and confused. Confused about, did they really mean it? What were they thinking? Is it that bad? Am I exaggerating? Should I have done this? What if I did that? Um, Yeah. So when you find somebody else who's experienced and you realize, oh, yeah, they, they have so many similarities to me in terms of our issues and how we feel about ourselves and how we question that day or days or um, 
it's about so much more than just the traumatic act that uh, happened or acts in many of our situations. But uh, I don't know if you're the same person that wrote about the... I think there was another person in here because uh, I mentioned the, the support group. So um, same for you if you would like to know how to get in connected with with that uh, support group email me this is struggle in a sentence filled out by I don't know how you pronounce it X a n n i X Annie Zanny um, and Zanny is uh, trans male and writes about his depression uh, my bed is my best friend my brain is my worst bully that is a t-shirt that is a fucking t-shirt. My bed is my best friend on the front and my brain is my worst bully on the back. Yeah. I've got to get these t-shirts together. I told you we're working on uh, one or two Herbert Herbert ones. Um, I wish somebody was keeping track of all the, the, the struggle in a sentence or just any excerpts that would be good t-shirts because we need to open a t-shirt store. Um, about her, her uh, his PTSD. Getting triggered into a panic attack from hearing people talk in panicked voices in the other room only to find out it was because of a sports game. Um, snapshot uh, from his life. One time at my boyfriend's house, I got really drunk on way too much whiskey and punched myself for hours until he got home and held me down. Uh, I'm hoping that holding you down was to keep you from punching yourself more. I felt so guilty that his parents might think he hit me from all the bruises, so I tried to hide my face from them for a week. Later on, I cut the shit out of my arms. I felt out of control with self-hate and anguish, like a fire in my gut burning myself from the inside out. I just wanted to punish myself for not being a normal, perfect girl, for not being who anyone really wanted in their life. Oh, sending you some love, Zanny. Um, any comments that make the podcast better? More episodes like the lady who was in the Belgian child sex ring. I like hearing the really dark and fucked up stories. And I like hearing that other people feel the way I do. Although like, it, I, I feel bad using the word like, um, but there's, I'm drawn to. Is that is that a more acceptable um verb uh let's see we you know what i'm just going to read i have one more uh shame and secret survey that it's just too long and i don't i don't feel like um reading it and uh it's another one in that uh in the vein of the other ones it's a um a female babysitter um, who abused a girl. And I think we've heard enough of those uh, today and my voice is getting tired. Why am I explaining to you? Why don't I just, why don't I just pick it up and move it aside? Oh. I, uh... <laughs> this is a happy moment filled out by uh, Lavender. And, how do you not? And, and the show on something by Lavender. 
And uh, she writes, I recently left an emotionally abusive home for college. Last night, I walked out of the theater after a spoken word poetry performance by one of my favorite poets. It was raining heavily, the kind of rain that sounds like thousands of tiny soldiers running across the pavement. Every so often, the sky lit up with lightning. The thunder jolted my heart. I stopped, staring up at the sky, feeling the raindrops hitting my skin. I grew up in California, so the novelty of water coming from the sky hasn't worn off yet. For the first time in many years, I felt so much. I could feel the emotions bubbling up inside me. I realized that I had escaped and that I could start to heal now. I thought of everything I've been through to get to this point. When I was a little girl, at some point, I must have stopped seeing a future for myself. Sometimes it's more painful to think of how much better things could get. Sometimes it feels safer and better to just think about the moment. Hope is a dangerous thing when you've been abused. I always expected to be dead by 18. But here I was, standing in the rain, feeling so much and seeing a future ahead of me. The rain soaking into my shoes and hair didn't matter. Neither did the lightning or the scared squeals of my classmates. And then the thought came to me. I made it. I survived. And in that moment, I felt so goddamn alive. And alive is in all capital letters. You know what I love about you guys? You always give me something that's just the perfect thing to, to end on. Actually, uh, sometimes it's hard to, to pick one because there's so many of them are, are just so inspiring. But um, I think we hit the... Yeah, we, uh, we hit Herbert's butthole mark. We did 180 minutes. We're at 181.50 uh, right now. And uh, I hope you enjoyed or got something out of our episode. Um, if you're struggling, I hope you can get the courage to ask for help. And um, it can be the best thing you ever did. And I know it's scary. We know it's scary, those of us that have reached out for help. But things can get better. Um, and just never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.